0: Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. All right, all right, all right, all right. Here we go. The Talent Tank back in session right here. This episode, we've got two more left this uh, before we hit summer. I know that seems uh, like the spring is just blown right by, but it hasn't. We've been stuck in our houses. Most of us, some of us, none of us. Some of us have been working on the phone, on the Skype. The reason why you guys dialed in today, we've got none other than uh the number 2 top epic moments in Ultra Four history, a guy
1: by the name of Rob a Guy I call my friend, Rob. How are you? What? Good. Thank you so much for having me on the show, man, and I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm a huge fan of the show, I'm a huge fan of you and like we've been a I think we've been doing a group text between you, between me, you and the Kansas boys, since what? I don't know, eight or nine years now. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time, and I'm gonna have to let
0: you let you down on this. Um, you are you're in the U.S. Virgin Islands right now, right? You're in St. Thomas. Yep, St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. You do not hold the record for the longest interview distance from Houston, Texas. That's uh, Chris Bowler still has that, but he was in Poland when we did his interview.
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he's wearing a jacket, too. And we don't wear jackets down here, unless <laughs> they're rain jackets. And you also
0: don't wear full hats. You only have a half a hat.
1: Yeah, half a hat and half a shoes, because all he wears flip-flops.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, man. <laughs> How long have we known each other? 08,
1: 07, 09? No? Yeah, back in the early days. And, you know, with Kelly and Matt, Matt was, I think Kelly might have been first, because he came out to Fayetteville. You know, oh, we're all we're all part of that early day pirate four by four crew and kelly was buying some i I don't know like a big tug or something from fayetteville he bought an airport tug or an air force tug and
0: we're talking about kelly kaiser and you know he's a pale of kansas guy same hometown as, as miles askest yeah black sheep 10 from pirate way back in the day
1: yeah like that was like 2005 you know so it's been a minute and then, you know, through, you know, we all had our internet friends on Pirate, and then we started racing, and then we all, you know, just linked up. And, I, and really, kind of going back to some of your first episodes, and I've heard you talk about it quite a bit, was, you know, King of the Hammers and Vegas Arena was what really brought all of us together in those early days. And exactly.
0: For Jonathan Turhoun, those were inflection points for so many people in rock sports and going fast.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, Kelly met
0: you, Kelly Kaiser. He drives out to... It, it was Fort Bragg, right? North Carolina, where yep. you were stationed at the time yep. you were in the military. He drove out there. He met you. Set, yeah, And you guys you guys were online boyfriends, right? I mean, Pirate 4x4. I think he put out a post like anyone live in this area, and you chimed up and said, yeah, I, I do. And so he flanges up with you, and then when we go out to King of the Hammers, you guys reconnected. We get introduced to you, and then now... Like I said, I think 12 years later, I, we have a date, we have a text stream that you and I are on almost every day.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, and I was deployed in Afghanistan on through 14 and 15 and we were still texting the same group It's it's insane. Actually, it's like the, it's like from like, you know,
0: from hell. And, and just recently you just did your, and we're going to talk about it. that as one of the, cra- one of the best, craziest, most recent stories is you just drove your, uh, your boat from
1: Panama city beach down to St. Thomas. How many days on the water? 16, 14, 18, 18. You know, it's funny. It's funny because my roommate from Panama city beach, who interestingly enough is my girlfriend's ex-husband's friend. Um, he's a roofing contractor. And I was like, Clark, we could run it hard, do it in four days. We'll take it easy. It'll take eight. Well, it took 18. <laughs> it's crazy. But no, it was a good trip. We had a, we had a good time, and we'll we'll dive into that here in a bit. So here we are today. You're in Saint Thomas Virgin Islands. Tell us what you do down there. You know, I'm going to tell you the whole story. You know, the Army nowadays and the military as a whole, because and I think the Army probably has takes the biggest brunt of it with like homeless veterans. And you know, if you see a homeless vet, since the Army is the largest branch, most people just default that it's a soldier from the Army. So when I got out of the Air Force in 97, it was pretty much like, all right, there's a door, you know, see you later. Well, nowadays, there's like a process to get out. If you do four years and get out or you do, you know, 50 years and get out, they make you go through all these classes. And for for the guys like me who did 26 years, they're not that worried about us. There's a couple of mandatory classes. But if you're a 24-year-old kid and you get out on your first enlistment, they make you go through all those classes. And some of those classes are like, here's your resume, come in in a suit. Now you're going to do a, you know, you're going to do a a fake interview and go through the interview process, you know, because they, they care and they, they want to make sure that you're ready. And for us, it was like, all right, retirees, uh, you guys good, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Well, I was in one of these classes and the lady said, and remember, remember why by this time, I'd already had, I'd already been running my own charter boat in Panama City Beach. actually ran it in Key West, Destin, Fort Walton Beach, and settled at Panama City Beach. So I'd already ran the whole year, you know, with my own boat, my own business, my own customers, you know, yada, yada, yada. And this lady who's teaching this class says, all right, guys, hey, we got like 20 minutes left. Just go on this website. And it was like Indeed, like Indeed.com. And look at what you're going to do when you get out. And compare the salary to other parts of the country. You know, police officer in Houston, Texas, versus you know a police officer in Pale, Kansas. You know, just to see the same job, different salary. So I was like, all right, I'll play your game. So I typed up in charter boat captain, and what do you know? Ocean Safari pops up. So I semi, you know, must be able to run thirty-seven foot center consoles, be great with customers, and be able to catch fish. And I was like, well, all right, well, I can do all that stuff. I've been doing it. So I attached my resume and sent it, and within 30 minutes, the owner, Mark Blackburn, sent me a text or an email. He's like, hey, Rob, this is Mark from Ocean Safari. Um, I got your resume. Let's plan on talking this afternoon. And I was like, replied back, like, yeah, no problem. After 5 Eastern times, great. So he called me, and in the meantime, he had gone through fishingbooker.com with my Facebook page, you know, my Jessica Schultz Fishing Charters, looked at reviews, looked at pictures. He stalked you, right? He stalked. He did. And, you know, and, and, and I had a conversation with Kyle about this same thing tonight about make sure your social media is cleaned up and, you know. And
0: we're talking about Kyle, your son, who we're going to talk about too. I love your son. He's got some amazing stories already at such a
1: young age, but. Yeah. He's, yeah, I talked to him for like 40 minutes tonight. I was FaceTiming him from the arena, and he was hating it. But anyway, so this job says, you know, must have had these skills and I, I had them. And, you know, then he looked and kind of vetted me and he says at the end of the conversation, this is like December 16th. You know why? It's like six months ago. And he says, Rob, you got the job. If you don't want it, fine. Tell me so. But if you do want it, do not accept it until you come out here and check it out. Make sure that St. Thomas is good for you. Make sure that the area, the housing, the food, you know, make sure the fishery, the boats, make sure everything's good. So I was like, you know, fair enough. So Linda and I, my girlfriend, we booked tickets and and flew over here in in January. And I will say this: within 15 minutes of getting to the hotel, they already had a car for us, and we went into Red Hook, and the Amex was flying like, I, no kidding. I, Linda and I were wined and dined for four days. They would not let us buy anything. It was surf and turf. It was wine. It was you know cocktails. They showed us, met us, you know, introduced us. To everybody in the store. I went fishing with Chris Rapcheck for two days, you know, to see how they do it. And, uh, you know, that we had a great time. We visited the whole island. We spent four days out here, you know, in January, where it's still relatively cold in the States. And it was beautiful out here. It was 80 degrees. Yeah, it, it's 83 and 73, like almost every day of the year. No, I mean, I remember in December when you, after that call, like
0: you came out of that call and you text our group and you literally said, guys, I think I just got a job in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. I think I'm out of here. We're like, what? No way. And remember at the time we were all booking travel to come fish with you in April in Panama city beach. And you're like, uh, hold off.
1: Yeah. Y'all were all coming down in April.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then it didn't happen. But now, I mean, now we have have an excuse to come to the Virgin Islands. Well, actually anyone that's listening to this now has an uh, an excuse to come to the Virgin Islands. It's an easy flight. Go fishing.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It's an easy flight and it's cheap and it's great out here and you guys will love it. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough though, like I always told, you know, my thing with running boats and it's really all I want to do is if I had my, you know, if I had it my way, I would run boats out of Key West. Well, the problem with running boats out of Key West is, you know, it's kind of like farming. You don't just wake up one day and become a farmer. You either marry into farming or grandpa dies and wills you the farm. You know, like you just don't buy a bunch of land, a bunch of implements and go farming. Like it's a process. Well, down there, you don't get a boat slip unless you marry a captain's daughter or granddad, the captain, wills you that slip. And they don't want anybody down there that's not part of that crew. So Key West was out. So anyways, you know, fishery-wise, it's great down here. So it's like my it's like my dream job times 100. And I work and, you know, between talking to you guys, you know, on the group text and then my buddies at work, they're like, Rob, what is stopping you? And I'm like, dude, I have to sell everything I own and move to the Caribbean. And they're just like, uh, duh. Like, why would you not? And, 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 you know, their thing was like, you know what? Sell a bunch of stuff you don't need, you know, sell it, go out there. If it doesn't work out, come back and buy a bunch of stuff you don't need. Right. It's easy to do. And when I put it like that, it made a lot of sense. And, you know, and it's funny because when I was in recruiting, I was a special forces recruiter for a couple of years. And I tell these kids, it's like, you don't want front porch stories when you're 75 years old, sit on the front porch, drinking your sweet tea, you know, saying I would have, should have, could have, you know, go do it. And if it fails, you know, dust yourself off and do something else. So I told Linda, you know, long story short, it took me like a week or two before after I got back before I called Mark at Ocean Safari and said, I'll take the job. Cause it was a big decision. So it happened though. (laughs) Job and then came out here and I, I sold my charter boat in January. The dude bought my charter boat. He bought all my tackle. I didn't have anything. So on the sport fishing boat, why not? Like I had to buy all new tackle, all new rods. You know, I spent like seven grand just in rods, reels, tackle, whatever. But You know, I was lucky enough to sell it, and I had a huge liquidation sale of all this stuff I, you know, don't need. And the only thing I kept was, I kept three things. My F-250, which is in Panama City Beach. I kept the KX-250, which is really a KX-300 that Kyle won the Noron in 2015 or 2016. And then I kept my toolbox. Everything else went, man. Like, everything went. I was a Craigslist and Marketplace, you know, demon. Just fires I, I, I know like selling your stuff, there's a suck level to it,
0: right? Like you're like, you know, I being attached to it, some sentimental stuff or you're just like, you know what, I'm over it. But h- how was the process of actually dealing with other humans trying to sell them crap? That's why I'm a hoarder. And you know this about me. I'm a hoarder.
1: I don't sell anything because I hate dealing with that other side of the transaction. How did you deal with it? You know, most of the stuff I sold... I would set it on the front porch and say, Hey, if you want it, leave the money under the doormat and Wyatt, nobody ever Jewed me down on price and nobody ever did me wrong. They like, Hey man, I like it. It's underneath the doormat. I was like, okay, thanks a lot. And then I would delete the ad like that went on. I, I didn't, it was almost, it was like this whole Jan, you know, January February, when I was selling all this stuff, like it was so easy. And then, you know, it's you know if you watch, like, American Pickers or those shows, you know, they, they talk about breaking the ice. Once the ice was broken, like, I would be looking for stuff to sell. Oh, I don't need this. I don't need that. And I would list it and be gone, you know. But I had all some, I just, you know, just years of stuff, man. And, and And, you know, everybody knows how it is. And it's just stuff that I just don't use anymore. I don't have, you know, I got parts for cars I don't even, I haven't owned in a decade, you know. So... I'm so envious about that. I Like I'm looking at, you. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'm living vicariously through you. Like, I don't know that I'm ever, I need to come up with the, you know, the wherewithal to actually sit down and be like, all right, I'm going to create an ad and I'm going to just start selling crap. I mean, it's, it is what it is, but you made it over that hurdle. And I know so many people that are listening to this actually probably 99.998%. Literally the survival rate of COVID it, that's listening to this is <laughs> having the same thoughts. Like I hate dealing with
1: people and I've, that's why I haven't sold stuff. And I'm telling you, I normally I don't say, Hey, swing by it, sit on the front porch. If you like it, leave the money. If you don't, you know, leave. But that's how probably seventy-five percent of that stuff was sold. Cause you know, I was still working and when you and I had to go back to Fort I was living in Panama City Beach, but I had to go back that last couple months and spend a lot of time at Fort Bragg to do the out processing thing. So I would just I you know, I physically wasn't there with the stuff. And my roommate would set it out and they would come get it and he'd have the envelope full of money for me.
0: Ha, huh. very, very, very cool. We know where you're at. We know you've been fishing. We know we've got a big story coming up about how you drove a boat from Panama City Beach down to St. Thomas. We know you're in the military at one point. You did, well for 26 years that we're going to talk about. We know you're in the racing, but let's go all the way back to where's Rob from? I mean, who's who is this guy? What made him into who he became? And all the stories we're going to walk through in this next you know short little snippet of your life that we're going to try to document some of it, but. You're from Missouri, or at least initially at some
1: point you were born in Missouri, right? Actually, I was born in Kansas. My dad was a railroader, so he was living, at, you know, he was working out of Kansas City, Kansas. We, we actually lived on the Missouri side, but Bethany Medical Center is right across the river. So I was born in, you know, I'm a, I'm a Kansas guy. But then, you know, once I was dried off, I was back across the Missouri. But I spent all my life growing up in Missouri. I graduated from Slater High School, which, you know, which is, Steve McQueen's childhood home. I don't think he liked it that much. And I've I read some quotes like, hey, I'm leaving. And I don't know who's gladder that I'm leaving, me or them. But, you know, they still have Steve McQueen days and his ex-wife has showed up or his, you know, widowed wife, whatever, has showed up. You know, so it's a big deal. It's 1,300 people. I graduated from high school in 1991 from Slater High School. And, you know, 20 days later 25 days later at 17, I was already enrolled in Wyoming Tech and went to Laramie, Wyoming. This was back when they only had like one campus, like Wyoming Tech was in Laramie, Wyoming and did the automotive program there. And, you know, it was in the 90s, you know, 91. I I think I got out there in February 92 and the first Gulf War just ended. We're kind of in a recession. Nobody was really doing anything. And my girlfriend at the time w- had moved to Warrensburg, Missouri to go to CMSU, and I moved down there with her. Me and my buddy Dave were living in this little, you know, trashy trailer. I was going to go apply at this alignment shop, you know, you know, the Hunter C-111, D-111, like that was all like the top dog stuff. And uh, he says, hey, no problem. Fill out the application. And I filled it was like a one page application. And then on the back page, I turned it over and put welding and ox settling, cutting and, you know, all that other stuff that most 18 year old kids can't do. Um, well, on the farm, they can. But, you know, down in Warrensburg, which right. is a city. He's like, hey, I got your resume. Uh, I'm going to have a car on the rack tomorrow. So come in and we're run through an alignment. I was like, no problem. Well, my girlfriend had a little S15 truck. And if you know anything about Chevys and alignments and the, the cars and the trucks are just the same, except they're opposite. So if you know one, you know the other because there's, it's the opposite. So I was studying up on alignments, you know, road, you know, road crown and camber and caster and towing and and everything. So I get down there the, after five o'clock that afternoon for the next day. He doesn't have a car on the rack. He says, hey, what'd you drive? And I told him. So he's like, hey, bring your girlfriend's S15 truck on the rack and we'll just do an alignment. Well, no problem. I says, I've been studying it for two days. So I get it on the rack and I compensate and jounce the suspension and you know, put all the heads on there and run him through a full alignment, with what I would do and what I would adjust and you know, whatever. And the guy standing on it, I never forget this. He's standing there with his arms crossed. And he's like, you know what, son? I'm impressed. He's like, but to be honest with you, we just don't have enough work to hire somebody else to stand around and watch everybody else stand around. And I was so shattered that I went to the Air Force recruiter like that afternoon, like the next day, the next morning, I I was there. Like I was signing up because none of these automotive jobs were panning out. Four months later, I shipped off in the Air Force and I've just been in the military ever since.
0: Were you the same thing as like Chris Summers? You guys were both like munitions loaders or something like that in the Air Force?
1: We were both 462s, and uh, actually I changed the AFS, AFSC, which is the Air Force Specialty Code, from 462 to 2W1, and I was actually schoolhouse trained on B-1 bombers both with both conventional and nuclear weapons, and then in 94, the BRAC, the, which is the base realignment and closure, they kind of realign everything, I got moved to F-5, F-16s, and I spent the, my last two years in the Air Force in Las Vegas, and you know... It was funny because I was stationed in McConnell Air Force Base, in Wich- which is in Wichita, Kansas, five hours from where I grew up. And the whole two years I was there, Wyatt, not one single person came and visited me. Five hours from the house. I wasn't in Las Vegas for probably three weeks, and I had visitors. And the whole two years I was there, I had visitors every three weeks. Somebody was coming from somewhere to come visit. So was it me or was it Las Vegas? It was you Vegas. Know, it was La- it wasn't you. I promise. Exactly. And it's funny because when people say, oh, my God, you know, how can you live in Las Vegas? Well, when you live in those places like that, like you're not downtown burning up the roulette table and the craps. Like you don't you don't live like that when you're on when you live there versus vacation. So, you know, we were riding dirt bikes all through the desert. I had a part time job at Lee Canyon Ski Area running the ski lift. There's so much more to do once you get out, you know, away from downtown in the strip. Was that kind of where you found your love for the desert? That was the first time I'd ever been in the desert, and it totally blew me away. And, you know, we talk about it all the time. And it, 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 when I lived in El Paso, it would rain, and like that desert rain smell. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like when it rains, like I don't know if it's the mesquite or what, but it's just that smell. And like, I will never forget that smell. And my first time I ever, you know, was been around that was in Las Vegas in the desert out there. And, you know, what I liked about it the most being from Missouri and, and and you can relate to this, you know, growing up in Kansas and even in Texas too, like we don't have public land like that. Like there's just, you can't just go. Not at all. You can't, you got to go through a gate. Somebody owns it. You're trespassing, but out there in the West, like it's just so open, it's vast and it's accessible and it's minutes away from your house. And we'd go out there and just ride, you know, dirt bikes, you know, I had a blazer. My buddy had a Jeep. We would take the desert all the way from Vegas to Lake Mead and then, you know, start a fire and drink beer and then hang out that night and sleep and then come back. Like there was just so much to do. And like, that was like my first real experience of like just loving the desert.
0: So you're in the air force at this point. They never deployed you anywhere though, right? You stayed stateside your entire time with the air force.
1: Yeah, you know, it was 92 to 96 or 93 to 97 or whatever it was. Yeah, and then we deployed stateside for training, but nothing overseas. And then at, at Nellis, that's where the Weapons Academy is. So whenever you're watching Discovery Channel and you see these, you know, the heli- uh, these airplanes with WA, that's, you know, the Weapons Academy. And basically what the Weapons Academy is, it's like the Navy's top gun school, but it's 6 months long. It's they, you know, the pilots do 3 months of air to air Three months air to ground, and then we get a new new batch. And you know, these are the best of the best. You know, you got to have so many thousand hours of seat, you know, stick time, so many thousand hours of instructor pilot time. So you know, these are the best ones, and it's six months long. And it's they once they graduate, they wear that patch forever. You know, as a weapons academy graduate. They're super stressed out and they over the aircraft all the time trying to get away. You know, the F-14 Comp Tomcats, they would they would lock the radar on them at end of runway. Like our jets are already taken off with our students. And then the aggressors would be at end of runway with these high-speed radars, not even taken off yet and already have them locked on 80 miles away. So the students are super stressed and you know, they come back with cases of beer because you know, once the once you over-G the aircraft, all the panels gotta come off. It's gotta be inspected. So You know it was a lot of long days out there on that ramp and so learning how literally
0: honing your craft on spinning wrenches
1: oh yeah and you know and you know we have this thing called ctk and FOD, which you know it's your composite toolkit all of our toolboxes and anybody who listens who's been in the air force knows or worked in aviation you know i can inventory 150 or 180 tools whatever in like you know 10 seconds because everything's cut out in foam you know, you don't leave any tools. If you break a little star bit, taking a panel off, you, you'll you get a new star bit, but you need to take all those little pieces back and they're going to put them all together to make sure that there's not one left in there. So it really taught you, you know, taking care of your equipment, like you couldn't have any rust on any of your tools. And then the funny thing is I get in the army and I work on tanks and we drop sockets in the turret and the boss be like, "Ah, eh, don't worry about it. But you know, the stakes are different. You know, an aircraft, you drop a tool and it creates a malfunction. You know, the pilot has to eject and the aircraft's a loss and then the pilot loses his life possibly. Whereas on a tank, if there's a malfunction, then you just got a crew out there eating MREs for three days while you try to get to him and fix it. So the stakes are different, but, you know, we definitely did a lot of mechanicing. So you get out of the Air Force. What
0: made you, or as you were getting to the point where you're up in the Air Force, what made you decide to re-up in the Army?
1: So what happened was, you know, I had the, you know, we call it the first term Merriman blues, you know, you 22, 23 years old. You think, you know, it all. And I just was like, you know, I'm out of here. So I had like 80 days of leave saved up and I'll never forget this. I get back to, I moved back to Missouri and the Liberty, which is just North of Kansas city. And I have all these days saved up and I was for like six days straight. I just watched MTV. It was like the top 500 videos of all time and i just sat there drinking beer just like you know totally just i had no responsibility and i had checks come in every you know every two weeks so i was on terminal leave well the number one video was like guns and roses like november rain and i just like oh my god i just wasted five days of my life for nothing so th- these checks stopped coming and so i was working at uh, larson storm doors at the distribution center and you know when you're used to a set amount of like I had to work three jobs. I was catering. I was cutting meat at a price chopper and I was working full-time at Larson Doors in the warehouse. And after about seven months, you know, I was like, I'm going back in. And I, wanted, I actually joined the Army to fly helicopters. And at the time, they had already met their quota on, and, you know, pilots coming in. But they said, hey, if you just come in, go to your first duty assignment, put in your packet, it's complete, it's right here. And you will... You know your, your your packet's good, but we just don't have any quota right now. You you know from the non prior service side. So I was like, all right. So join the army, back to basic training, back to AIT up at Maryland, and then my first Germany, my first duty station was in Germany. But while I was at AIT, I went to a special forces briefing, and uh, I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And the minute I got to Germany, I put in my my request to go to you know our assessment and selection course. And went to select, went flew back to Fort Bragg, went to se- uh, selection and assessment. And out of 400 people, 90 of us made it through. And of those 90, 60 of us got selected. So I did five more months at Germany, and then I, you know, was PCS, which is you know, moved back to Fort Bragg to start training. And then I've, that's what I've done since 2000. And then we met you somewhere, you know, not too many years after that. When I first met you, you
0: you were Special Forces at that point, Army. And, mm-hmm. and I think you were bouncing back and forth now. So talk about some of the, some of the detailed things that you, you were doing, like your training, Like, because I know you were spending time like once a year, you would be in Key West doing dive training, boat operating.
1: Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Like, you know, and it goes back to the desert and we're going to come back to the desert too. And it comes back, you know, when we talk about KOH and Baja and everything else, but I went to dive, uh, truth be told, I've, was selected in Air Force basic training to be a pararescueman, man, a PJ. And for some reason, they I don't know why, they picked me out of the group. So when I graduated basic training, I actually started pararescue training. Remember, I'm 19 years old. All I want to do is go chase girls, underage, drink, all the stuff that all of us 19-year-old kids want to do. I wasn't in the right mindset to be locked down and do these horrendous workouts and get drowned in the pool every day. So I didn't make it through. So... Fast forward when I'm in special forces back in the qualification course in Fort Bragg, the opportunity to go to scuba school came and I I saw the skeleton in the closet of this, this training that I did that I didn't complete. So, you know, they train us up and we, you know, our dive school is in Key West so I, I went and I graduated, no problem. I, you know, I couldn't do it at 19, but I could do it at 29. And that's, you know, physically not much different, but mentally that's, you know, I already had two kids. I was married. you're I was in a different headspace. At some point, we went back as an instructor to that school, right? Actually— there's two things. You you don't just go to scuba school. You have to like go through a pre-training. We call it pre-scuba or pre-CDQC. The course is called the Combat Dive Qualification Course. So what we did at Fort Bragg was we we would take 30 students who wanted to be divers and run them through the mill, and then send you know seven or eight to Key West to be divers. So we did all the pre-training.
0: Okay, and, and is that where you would send uh you know videos of uh you just taking the water hose to a kid's head.
1: Like, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, you're not going to drown on the pool deck and they're doing flutter kicks and their mask is full of water and all this, you know, they're called stress activities first wide. Okay. They're called stress, they're called stressors because anybody can do anything in perfect situations. So now let's start taking away some of your comfort items. Like, I don't know, the ability to breathe, the ability to not be able to open your eyes and see. So we had to introduce them, all this stuff. That way when they get to Key West, they're already used to it. They know how to handle their body and, you know, they can handle the stressors and actually, you know, let those guys at Key West take them to the next level. And so that's, this is something that absolutely fascinates me is how much of that, that, you know, you as
0: a friend of mine, how much of that, that you've gone through and then how much of that your, your mind is mentally prepared for, which is then you've been able to pull back on that knowledge from events in the desert where you've broken down or events in Nora where you've literally had to repair, repair, triage, repair, repair,
1: triage to get to the finish line. Like it's it's very goal oriented. You're right. And some people I've been asked about some of that stuff. I went to dive school at 29. Then I went to ranger school at 39. So I did everything kind of backwards, what people normally do. And I've been asked, like, does your military training help you do, like, this in, this endurance motorsport stuff? And I was like, honestly, quite the contrary, because the stuff that we do in the desert, like, it's harder. You know, like, when you're in the military, no matter what, there's risk assessments and there's safety things set up. And, like... You know, I sent you those videos of those shenanigans that we were doing with those students, but we had medics right there. We had our battalion doc right there. Like everything was controlled. When you're in the middle of Baja or you're in the middle of Johnson Valley and you know things go awry, it's you. So I always say that I, you know, I was fortunate enough and you know, I don't know, hard-headed enough to pass through some hard stuff to military, but it wasn't until desert racing came along where You know, I had to, like, up my game. So then every other thing I did in the military was even easier. I mean, there's risks that we accept out there. But no matter what, I don't. you know, in the Army, you're going to have somebody, there's going to be a truck to pick you up. There's going to be a helicopter to, you know, come get you if you're hurt. Well, out there, you know, it's you. And I, I, I credit a lot of, you know, our successes and just being able to, you know, do the things we did in the desert. Or, you know, it started off being based on the military training, but as it progressed, The things I did in the military, I was crediting to being able to be out there in the desert and manage all that stuff when it's just you, when you don't have Uncle Sugar and, you know, all his assets coming to get you. It's, you know how it is? It is just you out there. Oh, yeah. A
0: lot of the times and you get that deafening silence when everyone's, (laughs) there's no one anywhere near you, which, oh my
1: God, I know exactly what you're talking about. The deafening silence, deafening silence. Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full yet.
0: Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Branding Motorsports Custom Machine. This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon, and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the talent tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Brannick hasn't supported in rock sports, ultra four, Wii rock pro rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it from rear axle flanges to custom five 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Brannick my ideas and they made them a reality. Between the Brennick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom Billet 300M shafts, Brennick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline, with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. They're amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns. Onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled-out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links, and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brennick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy pre-runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, your you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick 260-467-1808, or on the web at Motorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now back to the show. So you've done a lot of training in Fort Bragg. You've done a lot of training at a bunch of places. They've sent you, they've you around the world and then they deploy you. You got deployed in 2014. I remember this when, when this all went down, you were a regular racer up until this point, And then the uncle Sam sent you to Afghanistan.
1: Yeah. I had a couple of good jobs. Like we deployed, like right when I got out of the Q course, and, you know, was an actual SF guy. I, within one week, I was in Afghanistan in 2003. And then we came back for six six months and then we're gone for eight. And then we were, you know, back for six months and then gone for eight again. Well, you got to remember the whole time, I've always been into four-wheel drive trucks. I think my pirate membership number is like 3,000. I think they're over 100 and some thousand now. So, you know, I was a member since 2000, 2001. And I've always, you know, worked on stuff and built trucks and in the meantime when we were coming back on our breaks you know i would take my bug or, you know my little zook and do something to it and then that morphed into the buggy and 2007 2008 i had a job at the dive locker where you know we weren't deploying anymore we would be gone training for you know 3 or 4 or 5 weeks but we weren't we were done with the deployment for a while at least i was and that's when we started and i'll you know king of the hammers happened and it was kind of low key the first year and then the next year, it was a big deal. And I remember going to a training event in 2008, and you know, reading Crawl magazine and looking at the coverage of it. And then that is when it popped up on Pirate that anybody who wanted to do it could apply to do it. We're jumping way.
0: I, I don't. I don't want to get into King the Hammers yet. I, I I do, but I don't. <laughs> I know where you're going. Like you want to go chronologically, and man, there's so much your your depth and breadth of knowledge and adventure is. It doesn't do chronologically real well. I think we need to pack it in in certain ways. So sorry, sorry. I'm gonna pull you back. I'm gonna pull the reins back out of King of the Hammers. So you did. You you've deployed multiple times, but then the the time that I recall and was at least friends with you is when they you went to Afghanistan. But you were gone for what eighteen months? It was quite a while.
1: Yeah, it was. I think we did eight that time, that last it, time in uh, fourteen, fifteen. Really, only eight months? God, it
0: seemed like you were gone forever. I remember my wife and I putting together uh like
1: care packages for you guys for Christmas or uh, some holiday oh that God. year. And so much awesome stuff. And you know, I will tell uh, even, even today, if, if a church group or you want to send a care package to like, you know, any soldier, wherever I'm telling you, people still, we, we get them all the time and there's nothing better than, so if, if you never get a thank you note or whatever for a care package, rest assured that they are getting distributed and they're awesome. Like, you send me all those T-shirts. I got triple nickel stickers sticking all over the place. So, oh no, yeah, that yeah, was it, uh, so. That was uh,
0: <laughs> no, that reminds me. Yeah, you you would regularly send pictures back of a uh, you know uh, I don't know uh, a minigun mini gun attached to an Apache, and it'd have a triple nickel sticker. You know, when my race sticker stuck uh, on the side yeah.
1: of it. Yeah, I was you know I was so appreciated to get that stuff to you. I wanted to like put it in a you know a place that you normally wouldn't put it. You know. You, you'll put it on the back of somebody's trailer or you'll put it outside of a, you know, I don't know, electrical box where everybody else's stickers are, you know, tech and contingency somewhere. But I mean, would you stick it on a minigun? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe not. And then somebody, you know, a
0: few years after that, uh, another person, I think, you know, I think we, I don't, I'm not even sure who it was at this point, but I feel like it was somebody that I met through you. They sent uh, via Facebook, sent me a picture of something in at Bagram. Air Force Base, uh, of the triple nickel sticker stuck on something there. and was like, when were you on Bagram? I was like, I wasn't.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No, cause we would go, we would go there to get resupplied and stuff. And, uh, there's these electrical boxes of this, whatever it was sitting out at the coffee shop and everybody put their stickers on it and, you know, and you'd see sports stickers, you know, or, you know, team stickers, unit stickers. So I always made sure I had a 1999 and a, and a triple nickel sticker and I just put them both up. You know, they're in vans. They bus us off these air air these uh these uh air force bases from the plane, you know, to the hotel or whatever, and you get on these you know bluebird buses, and there's stickers all over them, and I'd put triple nickel stickers up there and just everywhere I could. And speaking of the
0: stickers, so in 2010, I'm I'm headed out to Bonneville, and we're going out to land speed racing. We're heading out to Salt Flats. And we took a different route, and it wasn't a route I'd ran before, and it was a route, like, up through Moab from Houston, you know, going, going kind of through the Four Corners area up through Moab. And, uh, and then from Moab to get to Salt Lake City, it's a little interesting, and there's not a ton of gas stations. And, I don't know, at one point we crest, you know, some amount of mountain and realized, you know, I'm on fumes in the diesel and so I'm just hoping this this downhill, that at the bottom of this downhill, like 40 miles of downhill, that there's hopefully a gas station down there somewhere. We get down there and we find a gas station. I don't remember the name of the town, but it was like, I want to say it was like, like before Salina, Utah, somewhere in that area. I, I, I wish I remember the name of it. We roll into this place. I pump diesel. I'm walking into pay, I, and it's the back door of the gas station, right? And you op- and I go to open it right where you grab the handle. Is a USNIC Motorsports forty four oh six sticker, and I started laughing.
1: Yeah, we did the uh, the tour, like the tour, like a I don't know, like an old Motley Crew t shirt on the back where it had like all the venues for, for that year. And uh, we were in the middle of nowhere going to Vegas, to Reno in August of two thousand nine. And I we were sticking those stickers all over the place. Uh, it, it just it made me laugh. I mean, we were in the
0: middle of nowhere. I mean, it was the absolute middle of nowhere, and to see something and know somebody that I knew had been there. I, I do feel like, I think it was Salina, Utah. It seems like it was close to there.
1: Yeah. See that Because you're running out of gas because when we were pulling in there down that hill, like we were on fumes, like it, like, like, not sure, you know, not sure we're going to make it.
0: And then now today at some point you, I, I'm, I'm going to mess this up, but at some point after Afghanistan, they stationed you in El Paso, or maybe you were in El Paso before you got deployed somewhere right in there. You ended up in Texas. What was the story around that? Because I know when you moved from, when they transferred you back to Fort Bragg, you ended up staying with us here in Houston. And that hadn't been that many years ago.
1: No, that was uh, 2014. And what the like early part of 2014. So what happened is I was hit, I was at 20 years and I was trying to retire out West. You know, we had, had two like, three dirt bikes and I wanted to retire out West. And the only way I could do that was I took the special forces recruiting job at Fort Bliss in El Paso. And I was going to do my three years, you know, retire out and then try to find work somewhere out there in the southwest. Well, wouldn't you know it, on the way out, I was moving. And you, you know how West Texas is out there on 10. You go through I don't a hundred miles or so or just a cell phone signal is just as crap there's nothing. And I get closer to El Paso and, and all of a sudden my phone just starts blowing up. And it's like, congratulations, man. Congrats. Congrats. And I'm like, for what? And they're like, well, you made the E8 list, you know, master sergeant list. And, you know, I was going to El Paso to be a, in an E7, you know, slot. So I didn't know what was going to happen. And my commander in, in recruiting, who was actually stationed up in Washington state said, Hey, do not unload anything. Well, remember why I have a F-250 and a, you know, a 48 foot gooseneck trailer with all my stuff in it and a U-Haul with, you know, my wife at the time, Kristen's Sequoia on it. So I was, I had to make two trips back and forth. And, uh, I was like, what do you mean don't unpack my stuff? He's like, well, you know, the department of the army may turn you back and go back to Fort Bragg. And I'm like, what? So, Anyways, we made some phone calls and they let me stay there. But bottom line is I was not going to do 20 years. I was going to do more. And so I did three years there as a master sergeant in an E7, you know, sergeant first class spot, which actually worked out pretty good because, you know, E-8 has a lot more you know, clout walking in to talk to these kids' leadership than at E-7, because I was talking right to their first sergeant, which was, you know, first sergeant and a Metro sergeant's the same rank. It's still an E-8. So it ended up working out pretty good as far as the recruiting it go. But that's how I ended up in El Paso.
0: And that's how we all met Balls
1: Mitch. Yeah. That's how you introduced him to all of us. What a name. The infamous Balls Mitch was a regular Army recruiter that job in – special forces recruiting kind of as a career broadening assignment. And he ended up being my, you know, my station commander. And I ended up meeting him. The first time I met Mitch
0: was out at King of the Hammers, him. And, uh, you mentioned him earlier, but we actually didn't mention him in full name, uh, Matt Jabnasty Enix. They were deciding to wrestle in one of the pit tents. And I, the, the, the story is completely inappropriate to, to tell on the show, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> basically basically one of them screams out if i'm gonna wrestle or i i only wrestle naked and they just stripped right there in the middle of the pit t- the, in the middle of pit tent with 30 yeah, people standing dirt- around and, and car hearts drinking beer
1: and it's 20 degrees outside it was the most insane ever and you know <laughs> that, that, that the funny thing about that year well you know when mitch his last name's hawkinson and when I met him, he he walks up. You know, I'd been there for a couple of months already. No, actually, I got back from Ranger School, and uh, he was a new center commander. He walks up. He's like, because he, you know, he's like five foot nothing, and he says that he's gonna be mad when he hears this. But he's got. You know, he walks up like, hey, you know, my name's Hawk, and I'm like, oh, cool. We're giving ourselves, you know, nicknames. I'm Nitro. Nice to meet you, Hawk. And I was like, your name's Balls Itch Mitch, and uh, he looked at me all funny. When we went back out there in 2011, 2012, it was with the UTV race. I couldn't put balls itch Mitch on cause he's my co-driver. So I put B a W L Z itch Mitch. And then on my side, I had Rob Usnick and American flag. And on his side, I put a gay pride flag and put balls itch Mitch. And, uh, he didn't even know it until he got into the car to do the pre-run. He's like, you got me good. (laughs)
0: Oh, he's a good dude, man. I like him. And you've, and you've brought out lots of, lots of guys that, uh, servicemen that have, uh, Introduced him to motorsports, and introduced him to the lifestyle, and introduced him to uh, the family, and yeah, you've got a lot of great friends, and even friends that I've even stayed in touch with today because of you.
1: Oh yeah, I was just getting text from Fat Billy, and we'll talk about Fat Billy in a few minutes.
0: <laughs> oh no! Oh man! Wow! Um, I yes, he's a uh, he he is a an absolute piece of work. So when you were in El Paso, you had the opportunity to get out dirt bikes
1: and all that stuff, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, West Texas is that it's on the cusp of, you know, what's the Southwest? And there's not much private property like there is, you know, like what I was used to, you know, growing up in, you know, Missouri. And then even North Carolina, I think we had like two, they closed Teleco down. So then we had URI, which I think has a total of 16 miles of trails. So I get to El Paso and Kyle and I could literally... Within 20 minutes, load dirt bikes up and be down the street in the desert and ripping. And on a Saturday morning, we could rip all the way to Las Cruces. I'd have a beer. He'd have a Coke. And we could rip back and have everything on the trailer, back of the house, washed, cleaned up by noon on a Saturday morning. Like it was just, you know, there was so much great riding and, you know, I don't want to say public land per se, but just like, it's open, it's open out there. And it's, you know, we see the border patrol and we let them know that where we're going, you know, and they'd be like, yeah, no problem. But, you know, just give them a little heads up. And we we would ride dirt bikes and side-by-sides, like, you know, everywhere, just all the time.
0: And we're going to take a little bit, a, a slight tangent here, actually back to something I would normally have covered way earlier, but we got sidetracked talking about some amazing, some cool stuff, your family though, you're married for a long time. You, uh, you went through a divorce. You have two amazing kids from your, your first wife. You currently have, uh, your girlfriend that you've lived with for you know, like three years, your kids, Kyle. And then I forget, I always forget
1: your daughter's name. Yeah, Sarah. And she starts this fall at Penn. Kristen kind of threw me a little bit of a, you're going to kick out of the story. Kristen kind of like threw me a curveball. She's like, Hey, Kyle's going to fab school. You know, because Kyle's wanted to go to fab school since he was 10 years old, ripping around KOH on his 50cc dirt bike, hanging out with the dudes at the Traxxas, you know, RC car tent all day long while we were doing what we do. So Kristen says, tell you what, you pay for Kyle's fab school and I'll pay for Sarah's college because, you know, Kristen, who's still in the Army, is a military science professor at Shippensburg State in Pennsylvania. And she was under the impression that Sarah – was going to go to Shippensburg State, and if that was the case, then it would be tuition free since you know she was a faculty member. Well, out of the blue, Sarah's friend, her friend's big sister, goes to Penn State and invited the girls up to a football game. And you know, you know how those college football stadiums are, Wyatt. they are a hundred thousand people, like they're insane, and it blew Sarah's mind. So she comes back home that weekend and applies to Penn State Main Campus and gets accepted. Well, you know, we're talking like $120,000 in total tuition. So Kristen calls me back and says, Hey, can we renegotiate the kids college? Because, uh, Sarah just got accepted into Penn state. So I was like, yeah, we can. So now we're sp- splitting them both. Well, congratulations though, to find out your daughter gets accepted at Penn state. I mean, Penn state's a
0: pr- very prestigious school outside of the Joe paw, the ending story with the, you know. Penn State football, Penn football, right. It's still a very prestigious school. Very good program. So that's congratulations.
1: Excited for, and you know, we were talking before the show about all of our sound equipment, which, you know, you know, guys like me and you like this, like there's a lot more to this than just plugging and playing, you know, but she's actually going to be a sound engineer. So she'll be used to like, you know, meters and meters of knobs and dials and cords and cables to, you know, to produce music and, and all that stuff.
0: Yeah. That's uh I mean, it, it takes some love, like, right. And it takes some hard knocks. Like I have more power to her. Like I'm, I'm not an audio engineer. I mean, I've kind of developed into something of one, like a, like I'm better than a hack, but certainly not super qualified. Somehow we right. managed to get through. And then you're the same way, which I don't, uh, you guys listen, Rob has his own podcast. Like this whole conversation that happened last summer you know, last spring leading into last summer where I was thinking about doing this whole show, the talent tank, Rob and I are bouncing ideas off of each other on this. And, uh, and you've got one called the fish box. Initially it was for all around, uh, all the fishing around Panama city. And now you have, uh, you put it on hiatus, moving it to St. Thomas and it's starting to come out.
1: Yeah. You know, we talked about it last summer and, you know, one, we've always been friends and, and, uh, I thought the idea was great. And if you really want to like if you really want to learn more about the drivers, the personalities, the industry, the racing, and all that stuff, like you know, podcasts are where it's at right now. So I love the idea of doing it. And then I got to thinking about my own little industry. Like there's no podcast for like fishing in Panama City Beach. There's a couple down in South Florida and all that, but there was nothing. So I I wanted to do a, a podcast where we did kind of long, you know, same idea as yours. We drop a fishing podcast on Monday and then we would do, you know, uh, an influencer or, you know, somebody else on a Wednesday or something. But it was to get, you know, because believe it or not, you know, farmers, travel agents, people still use travel agents. Like I have a a friend from Missouri who's a travel agent. Why? Because when Farmer Bill Once I go on vacation, they don't sit down and Expedia and shop around. They tell the travel agent, this is how much time I have. This is how many people are going. This is how much money I had to spend. And this is where we want to go. And these are some of the things we want to do. And the travel agent plans the whole trip. Well, I thought travel agents were like a thing of the past. No. So what these people do, I found out. And the same thing with you, Wyatt. And and you know it because I read on Talent Tank. We're driving to work. It's an hour and a half. That's a talent tank episode. They're in a tractor for, you know, 10 hours a day. They're listening to podcasts. You know, Steve Harvey's gone. There is no more 61 country WDAF out of Kansas City where you can listen to talk radio. It's podcasts are where it's at, especially nowadays with everybody having a smartphone in their hand. So your podcast to learn are you know the things that we've learned about all these personalities, which most of them I've I know but some of the other guys i had no, i had no idea about you know casey gilbert what a what a fantastic story that was what a great podcast that was he's a damn right too we need to go back uh you know i think casey's casey's
0: podcast was good in the sense that he'd never heard what the talent tank was he bought in on cuz he was episode 3 he hadn't heard of any of this and and lauren lauren healy same way I, i'll i'll get back to visiting, but yeah fishbox you got to check it out. Uh, it's available all the same places that you guys find the talent tank. And Rob's got some pretty crazy stories on there.
1: After season one um, hasn't. I haven't dropped it yet. And I have a couple great guys here. And, and you know, for anybody's into fishing, or and, and even if you know anybody wants to come on vacation to St. Thomas, there's a lot of great things to do here that's not fishing. And you know, it's, it'd be it'd be one of those great pre-vacation, you know, listening to to get kind of like a feel for the area, especially if you've never been out here before.
0: You do a really good job of covering a lot of information for your area. And I, I'm excited to start listening to it about what goes on around St. Thomas I, and the you know the U.S. Virgin Islands. I've you know sailed around the British Virgin Islands, but I know very little about the, the U.S. V.I.s. And now that you live there, and then I have a, a fraternity brother that runs a restaurant on St. Croix, I would need to come down and visit, but between those two places and then how much my wife and I love, uh, love Puerto Rico. I mean, I absolutely love it there. So the part of the world that you're living in is something that is an area that I really enjoy spending life and uh, aspire to one day be able to have sit on a porch and tell those front porch stories <laughs> in that area. Yeah. That's a great place. Yeah. I was circle you know, not even circle back, but we, we started talking about Kyle, Kyle. I remember him, you know, on the lake bed. He's, you know, kind of like a Cody Knoll, you know, uh, uh, you know, growing up, you know, seeing those guys that when they were kids running around the lake bed during King of the Hammers, Kyle was one of those boys. And then, he did. He aspired to go to fab school. So he started fab school this
1: semester, right? First of the year. Was supposed to start in August and then it got moved to September and then they didn't have something happening it started in November. So started in November and you know, he's, he's ate up with it. Like that's, I mean, you know how it is being a kid of, you know, you watch dad build stuff and, you know, and I'm kind of like a hack. I really wasn't schoolhouse trained on you know, metal fabrication. Just kind of bought a JD squared, red benders, been you know, bending tube 101 on pirate back in 2000, whatever three or four, and then just you know, kinked a lot of tubing, had a lot of scrap. But you know, we built roll cages and we built the buggy. So Kyle's always been around it, and he's always wanted to go. So like, there was never, there was never any wavering with him. Like that's what he wanted to do. Being around trophy trucks and all the ultra four cars and. That's, that's, what's where he, that's, you know, that's what he wanted to do. So he went. And then with the COVID thing, he actually, they, you know, California was really on lockdown. Actually, they still are. And around the middle of March, he wasn't doing anything. So his mom flew him back to Pennsylvania and, you know, he got a great job, you know, as a little, as a welder, you know, 19 year old kid. And he's making good money. And I told Kyle, I was like, you've got to go back. Because I was kind of thinking that he would not you know, if you're 19, all of a sudden you get a lot of money coming in. You know, you can change your plans, but like at least go out there and finish. So Fab School called uh, around the middle of May and said, hey, we're resuming classes in the first week of June. And he's like, yeah, no problem. I'll be out there. So I think he's going to graduate around the middle of uh, July right now. So he's excited and, you know, he loves he wants to be in the industry. And to be honest with Wyatt, he really wants to get down there in your neck of the woods in that South Texas, Houston area. And, you know, I told him, I was like, Kyle, listen, you're young responsibilities or, you know, you don't have many. And if you get with one of these fab shops who are, you know, their customers are racers then they're gonna go out there and race with them, you know, like Tribe Sixteen, like you know, Adam and those guys build those cars, and then they'll go out to KOH for three weeks or longer or whatever long it is. It's like that's where you need to be. Don't get wrapped up in production welding just yet. There's production welding's not going anywhere. You can make that your nine to five when you get older, but go out there and live this stuff that you've been doing for the last ten years, and you know, embrace it. Well,
0: I'll tell you what, the conversations that, you know, David Hartman and Nick Nelson and myself have had around the mini jet boats. And then that came out on last week's, you know, talent tank podcast with us talking about that. That's turns out there is a lot of interest in the ultra four community for those. I think Kyle could be booked up through the, you know, through the end of 21, just welding and fabricating and putting together just assembly assembly and making these things turnkey you know, mini jet boats. I think he, you know, the North Texas guys, myself, Nick, I think there's a ability for this, you know, if he were to get into it, I think he'd have a line out the door, people going, Hey, I want one. Here's all the stuff to
1: make it happen. And we'll pay you. Exactly. And you know, there's people out there like that. And I just didn't want him to get caught up in, you know, and there's nothing wrong with production welding, but not for a 20 year old kid. You know, like he needs to go do this stuff. He needs to experience all the different
0: experiences and learn all the different little things. You know, if he only learns how to weld a TJ bumper and weld exactly. 60, 16 of them a day or whatever that is that he would do sitting in a, basically a cube farm for welders. That's not, that's not for him.
1: No, it's not. And you know, maybe him at 25 or 20 or you know, 30 or 35, when he has a couple kids and needs some more stability. Yeah, of course. I mean, those job. I mean, production welding is not going anywhere. Anytime soon, but, you know, I've seen his work and, you know, he was already a good welder because he, you know, messed around on my machines, but, you know, he's really taken to the next level out there and he stays late after class and, and, uh, you know, he he struggled a little bit with stainless steel, but, you know, he figured it out. He's a smart kid. And this kid at 15 is a Nora thousand champ. So, you know, he is, and, you know, he won the two stroke only class on a KX 250 that I bought or built. You know, that's the only dirt bike I have left. Um, I sold the Husky, sold my KTM, sold everything else, but I kept that one. And, you know, he went down there with us in 2015 and kind of chased on his little four stroke dirt bike when we took just the Husky. And we went down there and when we went back to Nora in 2016, we raced, you know, a KX uh, or a KTM 500 in the overall, you know, the big boy class. We raced a Husky and a super vintage. And then Kyle, Fat Billy, and this, um, another friend of ours, Darren, you know, raced the uh KX 200 or KX 300 250, the 300 kit, and you know, they won the two stroke only class. And I added up the miles, you know, and Kyle raced like 850 of those miles. And you know, he's 15 years old, hit the bike, he crashes the bike, you know, because we all crash, I mean, you know, we crash the bikes, it happens, and he pulls it out of the ditch, he gets the LR co. He runs out of gas. The Husky comes by and gives him gas, because we have, or he dumps his spare gas in. The Husky gives him gas. Then we have, you know, little one-ounce bottles of oil in there that you can mix with gas that you buy. There's 2,000 pesos and a sat phone and all that stuff in the bag, you know, the typical stuff that we carry. Finally, he's trying to find gas, and, you know, and he's 15 years old in El Arco, walking around trying to buy gas. And then the, the uh, MAG-7 guys say, hey— The pits down the road. Well, that's the other thing. We had it all scheduled out, and the pits were supposed to be 50 to 60% of that day of that leg's miles, and they weren't even close. And I knew Kyle was in trouble because it was a 150 mile stage or whatever. And uh, I knew when I went past, no, it was a 130 mile stage. When I went, when when I got past 90 miles, I I still didn't see him. I was like, well, Kyle screwed. Like, I met, you know, (laughs) and we're running third overall behind Ricky Johnson. So I was like, well, Kyle screwed. Nothing I can do about it. He'll figure it out. And then, uh, you know, he got the gas. You know, he said they feed him sandwiches while they, you know, they kind of like massage the steering back into like where he could ride it from the crash. And uh, he finished the stage, finished the day. We prepped the bike and he left the next morning. And that went on and on. And, you know, my mom or my stepmom and my dad had flown down to Cabo and were waiting for us. And, you know, we got third overall. My buddy Chris Hart and I did. And then the Husky came through, or then Kyle came through, but we're watching him on the tracker. And I kid you not, Wyatt, you know, they've got a, you know, a clear gas tank on it. If that race would have been two miles longer, he would have been pushing that bike. Cause he literally had about five ounces of fuel in that, you know, three and a half gallon gas can on that, or gas tank on that dirt bike. So, you know, we had, it's kind of like Captain Ron. Well, we're there. How do you know? Cause we had just enough gas to make it and we're out of gas. There you go.
0: And this wasn't like, you know, you just strapped Kyle on a bike and threw him into a race. He, you guys had ridden a lot. He'd ridden a lot. I recall, I think you guys did like a Parker, Arizona to Vegas ride at one point where you guys, you know, you got out Google maps and you plotted a course and you and Kyle just vanished into the desert for four or five days or something. I thought that was pretty damn cool.
1: Yeah. We did like a five day vacation all through Lake Havasu, Las Vegas, all down through, uh um, the other little town on the river there in Nevada, Laughlin. And, uh, you know, Kristen and Sarah would drop us off, and we would just ride. And we spent, like, you know, we rode for three days straight just all through the desert. You know, and kyles he's been on dirt bikes since he was four years old. So, you know, he's definitely no slouch with a dirt bike. The only thing he's not that great at is motocross. And, you know, those kids, you know, and anybody who does motocross, you know, Chris Ridgeway and all those guys that we were familiar with, you know, that mentality of grip it and rip it, like, you have to grip it and rip it because God forbid you come up short. And so Kyle really wasn't too, well, he did motocross at an earlier age, but the desert is where he just started shining. Like that's when he would, you know, he would rip out, you know, the whoop sections in, in El Paso and those roads, there's just miles and miles and miles of whoops. And Kyle just like, you know, rank, 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 and not even waver, like just hit them. So the deserts shined. Yeah. He got really good at reading terrain. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you know that, I'll, the the only bad crash he had we were in el paso and uh he had a little kx 125 and i had the 250 and uh with the same 250 that i ended up building for him to race nora and we had this little lap we did like 7 mile lap this around and i was putting the bike back on the trailer and he's like hey i'm going to take a lap real fast i was like yeah, go ahead so he takes off and he's coming back around and this is like a big not a parking lot area but it's a big open area and these three little Mexican chicks got out of this car. They're all about his age, you know, 14, 15 with their dad or whoever. And he comes out of this little wash and jumps. But the wind caught the bike because he's trying to show off. The wind kind of blew the bike over a little bit. And he wadded that thing up. And I had to, like, pour him back into the truck. And his knees were messed up. So we go to um, we go to the hospital in El Paso. And I got to call Kristen, you know, to make the phone call to mom. It's never fun. And Kyle ends up getting like 40 stitches in his knee. Like it was, it was bad. It was, it was bad. And I'd walked out to go move the trucks. I dropped him off in the ER. And when I came back up there, Kristen was there and they'd already gave him, you know, morphine. I was like, Kyle, how you doing, man? He's like, dad, I'm doing just fine. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they, they did, they did 40 some stitches in his knee and it was pretty bad. Now, didn't he have a dog like bite him in Mexico?
0: Like while he was riding?
1: Oh no, that's when we were coming back from uh, we were coming back in 2015. I you know, as a Steve McQueen fan, all I wanted to do is ride wheelies on the beach like Steve McQueen. That dog on the beach, they wanted to play with him, like they wanted to play. They would chase you. And then once it once the bike stopped, like if you just stopped, then they would surround you with their tails wagon, you know, but then you take off, they would go back into attack mode. So, okay, yeah. So Kyle rode down the beach, dogs were chasing him, he was scared. He ran to the hotel where we were staying at and the dogs kind of had him like he pulled into a park line. He couldn't get out. And the dogs kind of like set up a little barricade. Finally, me and Billy went over there and got the dogs out of the way. And Kyle ripped down in front of that hotel and went right down the beach, 10 feet from the outdoor seating area and uh, just dusted everybody out there eating and, uh, within, you know, 10 seconds, the dude's walking down to the suit saying, Hey guys, no more, no more of the dirt bikes. Cause he just dusted out everybody out there enjoying lunch.
0: Oh, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's completely believable, right? That's, uh, that's exactly what you do when you're 15.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Of course. Actually that was 2015. He was 14 then.
0: Oh, he's four. He was 14 years old but 2015.
1: Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full yet.
0: For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but, with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10 plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions. Springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, Diesels, Drag Racing duels and triples. They've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you are a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. So, let's jump back to uh You and Motorsports and like I know you when you were in, at Bragg, you were into off-road. I mean, obviously, you've been on Pirates since 2000, 2001. You end up wheeling a little bit with uh, some guys who I thought Nick Nelson had been involved with, uh, but he, he'd he been involved with the other guys, the Dixie Crawlers. But the Mud Devils, like Travis Watford and company, and then somewhere in there, you decide to build your Samurai buggy, and that's the buggy that we knew know you from competing in We Rock, and then you for King of the Hammers.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I had a little Zook that I bought off eBay and uh, I never was a Jeep guy. And I've just recently bought my first Jeep. I'm 46 years old. And I mean, you live on an island, you buy an island Jeep. They're just easy. But I wasn't really in the Jeep thing. You know, I don't know why I was or wasn't. But, you know, the Samurai is what I always liked. I thought they were roomy. They're small. They're cheap. They're fun. That's like most of us. The more you start beating on it, the more you start removing stuff. And finally, that's when I decided, like in 2007, we're just going to build a buggy. So I built a buggy based off, you know, it had a Zook hood, all Zook drive tank. I think it might have Toyota axles. And then we competed in the We Rock Southeast regionals. And, you know, the, the Zook was like, you know, hundred horsepower, 42 inch sticky i-rocks, you know, a 6.5 to one transfer case at 529s and ARBs. It, it was a rock crawling machine. And, you know, we ended up winning that little series, but Travis was coming down there, you know, Greg Stone, you know, the Mud Devil guys. And then in the meantime, the Mud Devil guys were actually hosting races. They were doing these little races up there, like club members and, you know, $25 pot winner take all or whatever it was. And the summer before I built the buggy, I was in my little snow camouflage Zook and Kristen and I did this, did this race with the Mud Devils. And, uh, well, that night we had a military ball. So in the trailer was our, my, you know, my dress uniform and her ball gown, you know, we're doing this race, got five point harnesses on, and it's kind of like a little rock crawling section. Well, the harness had rubbed her neck on both sides, like, you know, gave her like these hickey marks. Well, we finished the race, had a couple beers, and then we took off for Fayetteville for the ball. Well, Kristen goes to put her gown on and her neck is just red as it can be. From those five-point harnesses, you know, rubbing on her neck, but, but yeah, we did a lot of wheeling with the Mud Devils from the early days, and you know, I saw, you know, you know Jim building those buggies, saw some of the first ones he built, and then we were racing with the Mud Devil guys up at Uari when they had the uh, like the Uari Fest or whatever it was when Greg Stone flipped his buggy over upside down in that pond. You know some scary time oh that's right. I do remember
0: that I right. oh yeah, it was the downhill with the right hander at the bottom of it and all you saw was the maxis like two maxis sticking out of the water
1: yeah there was yeah back I mean this is like two thousand seven and you know an ls you know even four hundred horsepower in a ls you know in a buggy was a lot you know not like it is today but you know, that was a big deal when we're all used to like, you know, six cylinder Jeeps and, you know, maybe a, maybe, maybe a little TBI Chevy, but when the LSs came along, like that buggy was fast and, and it was just loose and it was the off camber. And it just, you know, we're racing and you know how we all lose our mind when the window nets go up and the helmet comes on and it just got away from Greg. And I will always say this, what saved Greg was one, we were all there fast, but two in those XRR days, or the XRRA days, you guys had to do a blindfolded, full seatbelt, helmet, window net, get out of your car. Like you had to be, then they test you Fire, fire, fire. Yeah. Fire, fire, fire. So that's what saved Greg because he was racing with, you know, XRRA guy, you know, with you guys. And when he was upside down in that water, he went back to his training and, you know, got out. I remember just
0: seeing the picture of that buggy, man. I wonder what he's up to these days. I haven't heard that name in yeah. I'll tell you what,
1: 10 that years. dude is a monster on a dirt bike. He does a lot of dirt bike riding now. Oh, that's a uh, that that's awesome that we bring that back up. And then
0: in two thousand nine, Dave put well, it, I mean it's fall two thousand eight at this point. Dave, uh, Dave and Jeff Knoll, they put out the uh, you know the beacon or whatever about this race, right? We kind of seen it in. We, we knew about it from 07, the OG 12. Then we see, you know, how many guys, how many guys raced it in 08? I think I should know this, but it feels like 42. 40, or,
1: 42,
0: uh, I want to say. 43, somewhere in there. And then in 09, was there, 90? Was that the number? It was capped at 90, but then I think like 100 raced.
1: Yeah, it was something like that. And when that issue of Crawl Magazine came out that summer in 2008, like that's when like I poured over those pictures and like, I was, I would had my buggy halfway done. We're getting ready to do another URI race. I know it needed some work to go fast. So that's on pirate that fall. They put in the, you know, apply now. So I filled out the little application and then the crawl magazine had this King of the hammers logo. And I took that to my steel cutting guy and he cut this thing out. I don't, it was big. It, it was bigger than a, it was bigger than a photo book because I sent when I sent my application, I sent it in a photo book with all the pictures of me building cars with the you know the kids, my little resume, and then you know a double-sided sticky tape. I had this big, huge cut-out of aluminum logo, and I put it all in a box and sent it off. And I'll be damned if I didn't get in. And the it gets even crazier a little bit. You know, Jody Everdeen, Bob Rogie, we were all racing in Mexico. That following fall, or two thousand eight, in the for the one thousand, Jody was down there and they were doing they were doing the very original King of the Hammers video where they you know Eric Anderson I think was there and they were just talking about the race from the two thousand eight race, and uh, Jody told me he's like, dude, I, I was there when they got your package and when they opened it up, they said I don't know who he is but he's in, nice. <laughs> But Jody was like, yeah, I was there. And they got that box. And they were like, dude, he's in.
0: What a great story. And then 2009 Vegas to Reno. I don't remember. I mean, I remember, believe me, I remember very well how I met this guy, uh, Matt Enix. And from the ultra four racing world, he was the guy who, whenever you see any UTV racing, he is the one with the had. He has the, the rooster bolted to the top of his roll cage. It's he raced multiple years with it on the top of his roll cage, led a couple years, What year was the year he almost won and then he had a flat like three miles from the finish and uh, Mitch Guthrie ends up getting another win?
1: 11, 12, maybe 13. It was
0: right in there. Somewhere right in that window. But yeah, I remember I met Matt in Oklahoma, Disney, Oklahoma for uh, like a King of Hammer style. It was called the Disney Challenge DC, DC three or something like that. And Matt was there. And because of that relationship with him, which he's crazy, by the way, and you know this, absolutely know this. he's a, he's a, he's a nutball. We love him, but that's why we love him is because how crazy he is. Actually, I had a 35 minute conversation with him on the phone today about just some BS, but he reached out to me. He's like, Hey man, you guys are going out to that Vegas to Reno. I, I'd like to go. I'd like to go. I'd like to go do that. And I was like, man, we don't, I mean, I wasn't controlling it. I, we were on that, that whole team unite deal going, he goes, man, you know, I was like, you know what? Rob, you is going. I'm certain he wouldn't turn down some pit help, you know? And so I paired you two together and I'm sorry about that. Like, I apologize now. I mean, what the last 12 years of you being friends with that guy, uh, amazing. Right. But he shows up in Vegas. You meet him for the first time next thing you know, you guys are welding on your car on the loading dock at the Paris.
1: Was that, was that how it went down? He was pulling in the town right as we were, and we were gonna come in on the north side, you know, because remember we drove North Carolina, so been driving for two days straight. We get out to the north side, and I wanted to go run the car real fast in the desert, just because I never have, and I knew some places out there north of the uh, Nellis Air Force Base where we could do it. And Matt was like, "Hey, I'll be, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'll be there." Then I never met this kid before, so we get out there, we unload the, the buggy, and we rip around for a few minutes. And Matt shows up and, you know, he's got his, I don't know, with a Duramax crew cab with the big Miller welding. Oh yeah. It was full on Texas redneck diesel
0: dually welder. It was a total welding rig.
1: So um, we get back, you know, we meet and he follows us back to, I think we're staying at Bally's or Paris, one of those two right there off, off the strip. And something happened where we were trying to like, the rear end was something to messed up. Well, it's August in Las Vegas. And we noticed that all these, the big straight trucks and delivery trucks are driving up the ramp and going inside. So we went over there and asked those guys like, Hey, you know, we're, t- we got to do some work on this car. We're d- we just drove from North Carolina. We're racing Vegas to Reno. You know, it's hot as hell out here. Can we, can we come in and work on the car? And Wyatt, they were like, of course you can. Like, yeah. And I was like, you know, we're going to lay down tarps and all this stuff. So we took the rear end apart and, uh, you know, No, we actually used Matt quite a bit. He welded on it then. Um, We got the, I think the ARB, something was messed up on it. So we had the whole rear end apart, got it fixed up. And, you know, in the air conditioned loading dock of Paris or Valley's, whichever one it was, then we took off for the race and we didn't make it 35 miles on day one. And the rear end, I just had the ring and pinion just installed. The uh, ring gear bolts had backed out. Not what we did. We were welding on something else. I, don't, I mean, I don't have a new third member. So we called the junkyard in Vegas and they had, because I had FJ80 axles on it. They had a third member with four tens. So Billy, Fat Billy and Danette and Braylon hopped in their rental car and drove as fast as they could, 110 miles back to Vegas, the junkyard. The guy waited for him to get there, paid, I don't know, 400 bucks for it. They brought it back. Well, since the, you know, the front was 529s and the back was four tens. I was like, well, at least we got welded up to make a locker. So, you know, Matt welded that thing up, welded the spider's gears together. And uh, but we didn't have any trouble with the rear end, that's for sure. I mean, she was locked up. But, uh, you know, he followed us up. And, you know, we were getting to the pits at night. And you show up to a desert race with a welding truck, you're everybody's friend. And Best people friend. were uh, Matt welding on cars all night long. Every night we stopped.
0: Yeah, he, he he did do a lot of work. He said he worked his ass off.
1: Yeah, but no, Matt's a great dude, man. And I'm, you know, indebted to you for linking me up with him. I'm indebted to him for, you know, making the drive. And I told him, I was like, I will pay for everything you eat and, you know, your diesel all the way to, you know, Reno and back to Vegas. And then after that, it's, you know, on you. But uh, no, I covered all his rooms and, you know, I was glad to have him part of the team. So there's an epic story though that comes up right shortly thereafter, and, and it, it was epic
0: enough be, that it even made Ultra Four released like this this past year this uh, top ten you know best drivers top ten most epic moments and as they did the countdown I think I was uh, Alan Johnson was putting them out there I mean I know it's a big team of media guys over there at, uh, at Ultra Four Racing handling their social media it's a team effort but uh, as they do the the top ten countdown you know on day 10 it's number 10 they just count down we get to day two and it's you and it's you at roush creek the rcq and walk through that day and what happened at the end of that race because it is well it's epic it really was it's camaraderie at its finest
1: no it was why and you're right and you know before i tell that you know Will Gentile and what he did in the early days really put Ultra 4 on the map. You know, the DVDs of the races, you know, the DVDs of the qualifiers, like his what he did is what made I think was kind of like the catalyst that kind of put it where it is now and would it be as big as you know, as it was, as it is now if it wasn't for him? I don't know. I don't think so. I think, you know, the DVDs and all that stuff's kind of like gone by the wayside with the way live coverage is, but Will Gentile did a great job of really capturing that day. And, you know, so it's October. When was that race? 2009 or 2010. Oh, no, it was like, was it 10 or was it 11? We just got back. I was like, may anyways, we we were trying to qualify to go back out there. You know, we when we raced KOH in 2009, our first time, you know, we were in over our heads. Actually, we were always in over our heads every time we went out there. But I think, you know, we made it to aftershock and then broke an axle and fixed it, but timed out. So we were trying to get back out there. And the best way to do it was, you know, pick up the pieces, get the car back together, and then go to Pennsylvania in May and try to requalify qualify for 2010. And, you know, the, as we're driving this race, I mean, the, the little Zook buggy was always a great rock crawler. And trust me, that thing, it was a crawler, but it wasn't fast. And the only way we could make it fast is you really had to drive it over the edge and as we were doing this we were losing parts like you know the shocks are breaking off and like you know like the shocks themselves were breaking and we had ditched the spare tire and i would you know i had one lap to go i told billy to get out you know i love fat billy's been with me tens of thousands of miles back and forth across the country but i was like listen billy i got one lap to go and you know i only got like 50 minutes to make it so we came into the pits it was like just splash the gas and we're getting out of here. So by this point in the race, everybody either broke, finished, or, you know, called it. We were coming around and there wasn't a whole lot of lap traffic to deal with. Actually, there wasn't any. And the very last part on the man-made rock crawling course, me and Billy had hit it, like, you know, I think it was like five or six laps. The previous lap's not a problem. Just kind of let the nose come off. Once the front tires sit, just give it a little gas and it pulls right out of it. Well, me being overzealous and the, seeing the finish line right there, knowing that time was ticking away, came off a little too fast, and it goes up on the stinger. And I would just remember staring right through the windshield or right through the, you know, to the to the ground, going like, "Oh my God, please don't go over!" And and then slow motion, it just went over. You know, and then I was just like, "Well, now what?" So. The rules of the race are, you know, people can help you as long as they're racers. Well, everybody's at the finish line right there waiting to do the awards. So they all ran up and helped me flip the car over. And then it wouldn't start. I think I had a, I had GSXR 750 throttle bodies on it and the throttle cable had broke or something or whatever it was. I couldn't get it to start. So finally I just floored it, you know, put the butterflies all the way open and tied it off and then just hit the kill switch. I got it at the start, but it was on the rev limiter. And then this was going backwards and backwards and backwards just hitting the on off switch. And if you watch the video, you can see the lights, you know, wired into the ignition coming on and off. Cause that's how I was trying to drive it. But, uh, we swing the car around, we come across the finish line. And, uh, I was just like, "Did we make it? And then that's when Dave was like, no, you didn't. But we came to get 10 racers. And I think I was 11th one across, but will Oh, my God. Will Carter. Will Carter had won and he was already qualified from the previous year. So Dave was like, we came to get 10 drivers and you're the 10th driver. And, you know, it was just a big deal. And, and you know, and I think Will Gentile did a great job of of capturing that because he was there. And, you know, that's what made it so epic. And, you know, I'll never forget it. It was a great it was a great day.
0: It really was, and the video on that's really good. I, I have no idea where it is, but I know as soon as Will hears this, Will will ha- have that catalog. He, his mind works that way; he has a mental catalog of exactly where every file is saved and how he has them done. And I'm sure he'll pop it up. Will queuing Will queuing Will
1: on the DVD it was uh, I think it was Rouse Creek, The Road to the Throne, or whatever. Like, cha- like chapter ten or eleven is called like the Eustace Finish, and and I, I don't know. I, I just think that it captured, you know the spirit of the racers, the spirit of the race. I think it just captured everything. And in those early days, I think that was really important for what the sport is and how it's kind of developed to where it is now.
0: No, fully and absolutely. And I think there was some standards set by some guys like, you know, like like the Campbell family and what, what Shannon did to set some standards. And we've all kind of abided by them. And that's one of them. You know, it's the camaraderie first.
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt.
0: And then after that, I mean, yes, you, you had some stuff in the zoo. Eventually, you finally sold it, you know, all 100 horsepower of it. You know, all three gerbils were just happy to be retired. It was an amazing day.
1: Well, you know, I will say this, Why Before I sold that thing, we had raced that little car from coast to coast in like nine different states, from Pennsylvania all the way to California. I, I think at one time it might have been the most – like there had never been, there was never an ultra four car that had raced in like nine or 10 States, whatever it was, because we were just dragging that thing. We were hitting all these little races locally we raced racing in South Carolina, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. Like we were racing it, like, you know, and we were always outgunned, but you know. No, you were out having fun though. I
0: mean, that was the thing. Like you knew you, there wasn't like a win out there for you, but you, you were there for everything else. Just, just to say you did it to overcome the adversity and you continue to do that, like, with re- with reckless abandon. Uh, continue to set up adversity in front of yourself just to see if you can climb over it. Yeah, I, I think I don't know if you do it on purpose or it's completely by accident.
1: No, I just say I don't know if it's ignorance or what it is, but I don't know.
0: You graduated the the other direction, right? You went from like the forty four hundred class. You went. You graduated down to UTV.
1: You started racing UTVs for a while. Well, yeah, my side by side. I bought it from this kid out in Corona, California. And, you know, for the day, this is kind of before the razors really took off. You know, if you want to go fast in UTV, you, you took a Rhino and you modified it. And this thing already had long arms and a nice cage and a built engine. And I didn't buy it to race. We just happened to buy it and had fun in it. And then all of a sudden UTV race started And we started racing it. And then, of course, then it's a $10,000 engine. And then it's, you know, this and that. And it's King shocks and bypasses. But that was a fun car, too. And, you know, we ended up finishing KOH in 2012. I think we won back when they had, like, classes. I think we won the production 750 class or something like that. And then the next year, we went, we took it to Nora. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and again, overhead with that, too. But you know, I had a guy come out, Eric, and and he co-drove with us. And I had one man pit crew, Balls Itch Mitch. And that's when we had the big fire that got all out of control on Facebook. And, you know, people were calling me like, what happened? People were on fire and people died. I'm like, what? No, Eric burned his hands. He's fine. Well, actually, he wasn't fine. But, you know, it wasn't as bad as what the, you know, the grapevine had made it sound by the time I got back. So we ended up finishing that race after we fixed the car back up. But, you know, we raced it all over, too. We raced it in Texas, the BRT races. We raced it in New Mexico with the, you know, with the New Mexico off-road series that they were racing up there. It was fun. And, you know, it, the problem with the Rhino was when I put that Rotax in an engine in it, you know, that's when you start finding the other weak spots. And the weak spots is always the front diff. And I just couldn't keep fr- – we ripped the spider gears out of them. It was just too much power, you know. And i, I never forget Jeff Grass. We, we unloaded that buggy. Out of the trailer and pulled the engine out, and Jeff Grass put that. He built that engine in the trailer right before Koh in 2012 or 13. Jeff's an awesome dude. Grass Valley, California, MJ Motorsports.
0: I don't know. He, he works for somebody else now, but at the time he was working for himself. Just stressed himself the
1: hell out. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, he got he goes to those races, and we don't we never helped him out in the low stress with. Yeah, you know, just added
0: to it, just more and more and more.
1: Yeah, can you build my engine before the race uh, in the trailer, please, Jeff? Yeah. My man, thanks, my man. Right, him, him and his dad Mo. I love Mo. Oh my god, I- the stories with 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 Jeff and Mo. And you know what? Those guys were cool as hell because when we raced um, the Mint Four Hundred in two thousand thirteen or whatever, two thousand twelve. Like, they came to Vegas, and, like, they, you know, they walked with us through, t- you know, tech and contingency, and I had, you know, big MJ Motorsports stickers on the side, and we were all wearing our, you know, sh- our shirts. And, you know, I'm, I'm all, I'll be forever grateful for, you know, Mo and Jeff for, you know, what they did for us in those days. Great family. That's,
0: that's all I got to say about it. Great family, great friends. So, we're talking about Rob Eustick and the renaissance man that you are this will come as a shock to many, but you're also a published author. You wrote a book. I've read it.
1: Yeah. So I always wanted to write a book and, uh, I don't, I don't know. So I just sat down one day and did it. And actually I started when I was like 21 or 22, but I got through one page and I just, I don't have, I didn't have enough life experience to talk about anything, you know, without being like science fiction. So anyways, I wrote this little book. It's called the lapis goat. And everybody who's read it, you know, always told me like, Rob, that'd be a great B movie. You should make a screenplay out of it. So I was like, all right. So I've started to write a screenplay. And if if you study screenplays, like every page is like a minute of cinema. So I was like, yeah, I can't do this. I don't. And then I wrote the book in first person. You know, it doesn't translate to a screenplay. Great. Unless you have somebody narrating it. Called this kid in uh, in North Carolina over in Wilmington. And he was going to write a screenplay for it. And what he told me was... He's like, I'm going to write the screenplay for it, and we're going to submit it to Netflix because Netflix is producing all these movies. And this is like 2017, 2018. I ended up getting busy with other stuff and didn't go back to it and kind of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But now with Netflix, Netflix like, going off the chart right now, I really wish I would have submitted it to Netflix, you know, to have them make me a great B movie. And then one more thing about the book is... You know, Lapis Goat's fun. It's, you know, it's about smuggling drugs from United States into Mexico. And it's, you know, it's it's just fictional storytelling based on some characters in my life. But what I'm finishing up now, and I just got off the phone with Lisa before, uh, well, this morning, is my editor in New York City, as I wrote A Thousand Miles of Dust, which documents all of our racing, talks about King of the Hammers, talks about Mint 400, And it was leading up to us racing the Husky, you know, the McQueen Kong. McQueen Kong. And uh, And we didn't, when we were talking about this earlier,
0: Nora, we didn't actually talk about McQueen Kong.
1: No. And, you know, that, that bike, 1970 Husky 400, one of 700 imported in, in 1970, it was the one that everybody wanted um, I think Steve McQueen owned two of them. He, that's what he's riding in that historic picture of him riding the wheelie with his shirt off. And then we were racing against the other team that had, the, had a Honda. So they called it Hanzilla. Well, you know, Hanzilla, you know, the Ruby McQueen Kong, you know, kind of a, a little play on that. And, you uh, know, those guys were all injured vets. And some of them had some amputees and stuff. And, but that bike was leaps and bounds, like, ahead of ours. They had, you know, upgraded forks, they had disc brakes. And, you know, meanwhile, this thing had nothing. We ended up losing, we got second place to them. And then uh, we went back to race it again in 2016. We took the other two bikes down and got second again. So the old McQueen Kong bike uh, got second two times in Nora, but it was a great bike and it was a super history. And, and that book documents, you know, me and Kevin Downing and we're building it and I'm shipping it to him and internet friends are delivering it from where I bought it. It came out of um, a dude on pirate of all things. I put a post on there about anybody got a, an older bull taco husky, whatever. And I bought it for 1300 bucks and Armando Ruga delivered it to my buddy, Kevin in Phoenix and Kevin built it while I was deployed. And then the first time I saw it was when we were in Phoenix, picking it up to go take it to Mexico. I mean, this, uh, the, the book, it, it's a hardback book. It has like 240 full color pictures because you know how it is, why when you're down there and all this craziness happens, nobody believes you. Well, no, guess what we well, have not at all. And well, in 2015, 2016, we all have iPhones. So we were all taking all these pictures. So we were telling these stories, and guess what? We had the pictures to back it up. So a thousand miles of dust, it's a full color hardback book, and it documents all of our racing and then the magic that what you know what we all that we all know Baja to be. When does it come out? So she's finishing up editing it now. I got to caption some of the pictures, but it'll be out soon. Awesome. Well, I don't want to, you know, wrap
0: racing because I mean, you've always continually kind of done that and showed up here and showed up there, but I want to get into this, this last chapter of, uh, of this interview, what you just came off this whole, we touched on the very beginning about your 18 day voyage from, uh, Panama city to, uh, to St. Thomas, but you actually, I'm going to jump back even a little bit further slightly before that you'd text our, our group and said, Hey, you guys should look up on YouTube. This show, it's a documentary called chasing bubbles. It's going to change your life.
1: Oh my God. I, uh, my girlfriend and I, Linda, bought. Our boat, why not, back in, I don't know, two years ago, 2018. So it's a 46-foot post sport fisher with, you know, twin Detroit's, Tuna Tower, blah, blah, blah. And we've had it in Panama City Beach for, you know, the whole time. I, I did do a couple charters on it, only when the charter boat wasn't running kind of as a backup boat. But it really sat all last year. And, you know, these boats are just like race cars and airplanes. The worst thing they can do is sit. When I got the job in Saint Thomas, it really boiled down to, what are we going to do with the boat? We, I mean, it can't just sit up there in the water. It can't sit up there on the, you know, in the boatyard. We need to sell it, or we need to bring it to Saint Thomas. Well, it's you know, it's eighteen hundred miles, the way we went from Panama City Beach to here, and so I was studying. And you know, Wyatt, you and Camo, you know, there's uh, Shane Chitticks. Like everybody's on these boats. Like there's a lot more people on boats. Yeah, Doug now. Jackson. I mean not- Jack yeah like so I was researching like you know on YouTube just movies and I came across Chasing Bubbles you know it has over a million views when I called you and talked to you about it that day or texted you it was I think it had like 150,000 now it's over a million just in the last 6 weeks but really? you know yeah I kid you not and the thing that got me with him is he was going to do it he was going to go around the world and nothing was going to stop him and even in the movie they say it you know, people will sit at the dock for month after month after month on their air quotes trip around the world. They can't go because this isn't fixed. They can't go because this isn't fixed. When I watched that movie, I told Linda, I was like, I'm thinking, why not there? I called the boatyard. They're going to put her back in the water on a Monday. And I have 14 days on April 27th. I'm leaving. That's my date. Unless something's catastrophic, you know, catastrophically wrong, of course. But I, I just prepped it. I prepped it like we do a desert car, you know. The engine, the generator, the steering, the you know everything had to be prepped because it's just sitting. But long story short, no matter what, I was leaving just the way Alex Rust was doing. And uh, so you know, we get the clear water. We got trouble with the steering, fix that. But then we next when we decided to name the, bu- the dinghy the Dingy Bubbles. And well, it's funny, yeah. You named it. You named it Bubbles. You sent it out, and then that's somewhere
0: around that little window we come to find out that this whole Team Indiana. With Nate Williams, Nate Jesse, the Brannick crew, Brant, uh, who else is in that crew? There's a bunch of, no, it's Brant's wife hitchhiked across Africa with Alex Rust chasing bubbles guy.
1: Yeah, because we were in Clearwater and and I'd already written bubbles on the front and Clark was coloring it in with Sharpies. And I did, I was doing these little video updates. I was like, Hey, you know, we're going to pay our respects to the, you know, you know, Captain Alex Rust. And I remember that little thread on Facebook went haywire with all these people like, oh, my God. And, uh, you know, it was great hearing those guys say, like, you know what, man? It's good to see that, you know, Alex, who we knew still has a a positive effect on people's life. And I tell everybody to watch that movie. Oh, you're thinking about doing something? Do it because there's no time like now.
0: Yeah. and Yeah. That's the small world of it is it's Brant Irwin. He is Nate Jesse, the 4400 driver, Nate from Talent Tank. He's he's uh Nate's co-driver, Brent Irwin, Team Indiana. He's a Purdue guy. He was one of those uh pork guys, which is Purdue off-road, something or other. It's his wife, Anna, and she had met Alex when Alex Rust when he was at Purdue. I want to say Nate and a couple of those other guys, uh Jonathan Terhune being included. I think he was on uh their same floor maybe in their dorm, something like that, but yeah, Nate's co-driver. It's his wife. His wife hitchhiked
1: across the continent of Africa with this guy. Insane. Yeah, from like Cape Town to the north. Like, you know, like they did it north to, or south to north, like the long way. Just crazy.
0: But then again, small world, right? I mean, this is the guy, you know, it, that, that you can reach out. It was six, six or seven degrees of separation. We found it in literally two degrees of separation that we could. We knew somebody that knew alex rust the chasing bubbles guy so the the just the story is yeah he decides he's gonna sail around the world how many he spent three years sailing around the world. he just didn't go go out and do the lap he did it he stopped places he enjoyed it he partook he he did it and so you were are fully inspired like you're gonna do this with your boat kind of
1: right You know, I got I get down here and my boss at Ocean Safari, he's you know, he sailed from, you know, the Caribbean all the way through the Panama Canal down to Australia and spending 18 or 20 days at sea or whatever. And I told Mark when I got here, I was like, listen, I'm not taking anything away from sailors, but, you know, you have so many less systems to maintain. And there's a lot of systems on this boat and they're 40 years old, man. And, you know, God love these Detroit's, you know, they just kept on humming along but it wasn't without problems. And it wasn't without, you know, this coronavirus that jammed us up a little bit. But what I learned is, you know, maritime law says you can't deny anybody passage. So when it come time to go through the Bahamas, we could go through the Bahamas. We just can't stop anywhere. Whereas everybody's saying like, no, you're like, it's like there's a fence up and you can't get in. So I sent some emails, got permission from the prime minister to go through and we just went through and DR, we get to the, you know, Dominican Republic, you know, remember we're fishing along the way because we're fishermen and we caught marlin and, we're, you know, slaying barracuda, tons of blackfin tuna. And you know, it was a great, it was fun. It was an adventure. And uh, we get to DR and we pull into Luperon We just came off like 160 mile passage. It was a brutal day. And, you know, the, when you come through the old Bahama channel, it's like it's, it's big water. The trade winds are blowing. It's, you know, four or five foot and it's 10 foot seas. It's blackout dark. And uh, I call into Lupron, the harbor. I'm like, hey, we're coming in. And this guy's like, you know, why not? Do not come in here. We're closed. You can't come in here. And then another guy says, don't listen to him. Why not? Come on in. You're good to go. So then they start bickering back and forth on the VHF. And then finally a woman gets on there and says, break, break, break. Why not? Come on in. I'll call the Armada, which is the Navy. And they'll clear you in the morning. I was like, hey, no problem. Because I, mean, I was in 10-foot seas at night. I'm coming in. You know, you're not going to stop me. Come hell or high water, you're,
0: you're not going to deny a safe uh, safe harbor.
1: Yeah, I weigh 250. Clark weighs 270. Yeah, y'all want to fist fight. We got guns on board. We're coming in. Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full yet.
0: Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stauffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus, the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest addition recovery rings not to be forgotten don't miss grabbing some custom splice soft shackles with your next order which are also available in many sizes and colors even though custom splice is a small business in america's heartland of kansas you can find custom splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank give todd and his crew at custom splice a call at seven eight five 856 1844, or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now, back to the show.
1: So, anyways, we get in there, and then, you know, the Armada comes on and says, you know, I'll be out there after noon tomorrow. No problem. So, we anchored up, and we get there, and the guy on the Armada comes out and visits us. And he says uh you got passports yeah you got guns yeah looked at all our guns which is two shotguns and a, you know, a pist- you know pistol you know a lot of guys don't travel with them I do because you know I spent 26 years in the army if I was out here with no gun and something happened I'd be the laughing stock of my community but anyway they didn't care he, so then he says I need you guys to take a COVID-19 test and stay here for you know for 3 days for the results and I was like no man we're not doing that and he's like well you know I can make a phone call and he kind of has his hand out Asking for money. So Clark gives him $100 and he's like, Yeah, I could probably get it down to one day. And then Clark hands him another $100 and he says, All right, guys, you're good to go. He hands us a Dominican Republic flag to hang up. He says, uh, You're wel- more than welcome here to stay as long as you want. What do you need? And I was like, yeah, we need 400 gallons of diesel, 50 gallons of water, 120 pounds of ice, three cases of beer. He's like, no problem. He's on his phone. The guy comes out there, delivers all this stuff. He tells us that we can take the dinghy off the boat and go visit the beach. Like, it was just like the most surreal thing ever. Like, they went from closed, closed, closed to like, yeah, enjoy it. What What else do you guys need? It was just crazy. Like every every place was like that, you know. Here's the one thing that I think is awesome.
0: I, the one thing that I think is awesome, and this goes to show you, there's absolutely two types of people in the world. And I think you just hit on it. You just boiled it down to an example where those two types of people are. You have the ones who are, I believe even you told me that you had a, there was a woman in Panama City who told you, you can't do this trip. You won't do this trip. Everything's shut down. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. Just like pulling into the, you know, safe harbor there at, uh, in the, in the Dominican Republic, you can't come in, don't come in. You're like, I'm coming in, you know, we're doing this, we're doing this. So there's the two types, right? There's the, you can't do it and you can do it. But then when you get with inside that, you end up with people that push the limits or don't push it. You know, they play absolutely by the strictest of the rules, by the strictest definition of the rules, there's no gray areas or bending, or if it's not explicitly written out, then you can't do it versus you can do it. And having this conversation with my wife is I'm showing her, you know, the, she's reading your text about the bribing and she goes, I would have to tell my corporate, you know, I sign an ethics policy every year. I'd have to, I'd have to report that. And I'm like, why would you have to report that? She was because I bribed an official And in there. It says like, have you bribed an official in the past year? And I'm like, that's the point of the bribery. It's an agreement. That guy's not going to tell anyone that
1: you bribed him. And you're not going to tell anyone. Oh, I don't like calling it bribing. I call it, we paid for the upgraded VIP service. So Absolutely. We, that's what I call it. But some don't. So he did, he did come back with another guy from the Armada and they gave this boat, like they shook it down. Right. Like he was crawling in the engine room and up in the front hatches. And then he, uh, Ricardo was like, do you have anything for my friend? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I got a hundred bucks for him. And then uh, Clark turns around and says, hey, is there anywhere else he wants to check? Does he want to spend the next hour checking the boat? Because uh, you're not going to give us the, uh, you're not going to upgrade us. You know, you're going to stop upgrading us because we're done. He's like, no, 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 this is it. This is it. Oh, (laughs) and then you guys, you get gassed up, fueled up, beard
0: up, iced up, and you guys roll out of there. And your next stop is, uh, well, you get your asses kicked, right? I mean, totally kicked, headed towards Puerto Rico.
1: Yeah, you know, and these guys coming through the old Bahama channel, which basically just runs from like South Florida, you know, eastward, all along Cuba, Haiti, DR, PR, whatever. Like that that seas are always big and they're always in your face. And we, you know, and I told Clark, I was like, dude, I'm worried about from, you know, from Great Inagua, which is the last little island in the Bahamas to St. Thomas is like at 600 miles and I'm dreading it and he didn't know what I was talking about until we got out there and it was horrible. The boat was just I mean, Well, you're pushing directly into the trade winds, right? I mean, down right along that in that area, the winds roll east to west and strong. Yeah, and and Mark told me my boss. He's like, "When you come, you may end up having to run DR at night because for something happens and you'll get like 6 or 8 hours of just like dead seas." Well, he's true, but it's real close to shore. Well, the problem is with DR, it's not lit up. Like when we get to Puerto Rico, you know, there's lights on the shore all the way from east coast to west coast. Like you can run San Juan, everything's lit up. Well, DR is like a big black rock in the middle of the sea. So you can't get too close because you don't know what's there. And, but, you know, he was right. It does calm down at night. So then we, when we get to DR, because the west or the eastern side of DR faces right into that, you know, that trade room with that constant sea, there's no place to get in there to anchor. So I told Clark, I was like, hey, man, I'm just going to alter course and it's 80 miles to Puerto Rico. And he's like, all right, sounds good to me. But, you know, you're going 10 miles an hour, you know, that's eight hours. When we'd already been running eight hours. So he takes over this, you know, the wheel, and I take, get a couple hours of sleep. And then the minute he goes downstairs, it starts raining. So I sit up there in the fly bridge for six hours with my North Face jacket on, just sucking as the water and water just comes right into my lap. So finally... It's about three o'clock in the morning. The, you know, the moon's raising late. The clouds kind of part. And I see Puerto Rico. And, you know, finally we can anchor. So I try to get into an anchorage. And this blacked out boat comes speeding by. And I'm like, hey, Clark, man, I don't know who these people are. Then they hit us a spotlight and it's the policia. They're saying, hey, what are y'all doing? Like, well, we're anchoring. No, you can't anchor. I was like, hey, man, you know, first of all, good, good evening, sir. Good morning. How are you? We're US citizens, Puerto Rico's United States, we're anchoring. He's like, Well, if you want to anchor, you know, Puerto Rico's closed, you can anchor where you're at. And I'm like, Well, it's 600 feet of water, so that's not going to work. He says, Well, the next anchorage is 30 miles to the south. And I was like, Sir, we're not doing that either. Like, that's ridiculous. And then he's like, You know, after about a 30 second break, he's like, All right, we'll go up to Nixon Shore where it's shallow, anchor, and then be out of here in the morning. I was like, All right, thank All you. Right, thank you. <laughs>
0: Was that that hard? And then, so we're, we're getting to the point where we actually have some, some crazy action. You guys traverse across the North, uh, the North shore of Puerto Rico, uh, across the next day. And then you guys again, have another late night pull in anchor up. And then you guys got some insanity, some crazy action.
1: Right. So we make it all the way across, you know, we fished all the way across, you know, Puerto Rico, I think it was, I don't know, hundred and some miles or whatever, and uh, there's one last little spot we're going to stop and pull in, and it's um, Bahia de Cerveza or something like that. Just little anch- little harbor anchorage, you know, nobody's in there. We pull in at night, and the police stopped us out front. It's like, hey, what are y'all doing? I was like, hey, man, we're on our way to St. Thomas. We're just anchoring. We'll be out here first thing in the morning. He's like, all right, go ahead. Uh, you know, again, thank you, sir. Thank, thank you very for- much. Is that that hard? So anyways, we pull in there, we drop the anchor and we're only going to sleep. And the, w- the way the winds was, I told Clark, I was like, hey, we don't need to get up at the crack of dawn in the morning. You know, it's going to be windy early by 10 or 11 o'clock. It's going to start getting better. So 10, or 11 o'clock, we'll leave. So, you know, we ate and had a couple beers and and uh, went to bed. And I have Navionics on my phone and I keep it where it's tracking us. And I just set my alarm, to make sure we're not dragging the anchor. So early in the morning, I noticed that it was dragging a little bit, but we we're getting ready to kind of leave anyways. And uh, Clark runs in and says, Rob, we're on the ground. And I'm like, what? So I run out the back and I look over the side of the cockpit and there's reef all around us. And I jump in the water with my mask on and I see both my props just like smashing, smashing these rocks. And so first thing you, tr- first thing you do, you always try to self-recover. So you know, my anchor is a big, huge, heavy anchor, and it's all chain. There's no rope. So I tried to, like, use the anchor to, like, pull us off of it. That didn't work. Hop in the water, tried to carry the anchor to, you know, like, like we would do a winch, right, you know, to go a winch and a pull pile, basically, with the anchor to try to pull us. Every time I'd lift the anchor, the wind would blow. We had two things going bad, outgoing tide and the wind blowing from the southeast, and it kept pushing us right on it. So I get on the radio and. I asked if anybody's in that harbor could help us. And then the Coast Guard, San Juan, gets on there and says, why not? Are you in distress? And I'm like, uh, well, not, actually, no, not this second. But we're about ready to be in a lot of distress. So they call a little cutter comes out. Uh, the police get called out. They call them, They come back out. Customs immigration comes back out. So all these boats are sitting there. Well, while that before they were coming out, I told Clark, I was like, hey, I think we can move the boat. So we both hop off the back. And we could both put our shoulder underneath the swim platform and just, you know, we're both big dudes, lift the boat enough to unload it off the rocks and we could move it. And believe it or not, it was working. The problem is when we lifted it up, then the wind would move it. And I'm, Wyatt, I'm standing there and I can see where it drops off to eight feet and we just can't move that boat five feet over onto it. So
0: what oh, what a, a heartbreaker. Yeah.
1: So the police show up, they don't have any lines, of course. So I think I have 15 dock lines in this boat. I tie bow ones in the end, hook them all together. And by the grace of God, that little center console pulled us right off that reef, right in the deep water. And uh, so now the Coast Guard's behind us, Customs Immigration's behind us. Uh, the police are still sitting there. I just jump in with my mask to check the bottom of the boat. The anchor's, you know, set good. There's not a ding on the props. There's not a ding on the rudder. I didn't even see a piece where the bottom paint was chipped, like Dodge, the biggest bullet of my life ever. So I hop off back onto the boat and I'm standing on the rear of the uh, cockpit. I'm like, OK, I'm ready for question and answer. So everybody want to know what we were doing there and blah, blah, blah. So they made you look stupid. Yeah. I was like, of course. OK, Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm actually a pretty good boat driver. Anchoring, I suck at. So uh, the Coast Guard, the Customs does their report. The police do their report. The Coast Guard said they want to do a, they had to do a SAR report, a search and rescue, since they came out there and like air quotes rescued us, which they didn't do anything. So then we, they're like, uh, we go offshore for this for that inspection, and they end up giving me a boat inspection, like a safety inspection, and then because we're a fishing boat, they gave me a commercial fishing inspection. So I ended up getting a warning ticket for not having trash and oil discharge placards posted. I was like, "They're, here. I got them right here. I just didn't put them on. He's like, well, they got to be mounted. Here's your warning. So finally at 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, we're leaving for Puerto Rico for St. Thomas. And I told Clark, I was like, Hey buddy, remember this morning early when I said we don't have to be in a hurry. This is not what I meant by we didn't have to be in a hurry. But the good news is, you know, once we were going, I could look ahead and see St. Thomas, and it was just an easy 50-mile ride. And y'all rolled in 18 days later, 5 in the afternoon,
0: in time for some beers.
1: Yeah, you know, Clark, dude, you know, that dude, man, for him to be able to take the time off, I told him, I was like, hey, we could probably run hard and do it four days. We'll take it easy, have fun. It'll take eight. He's like, I'm in. And it took us 18 days. So I called the guys, and I will say this, Wyatt. You know, all the, everybody down here who was following us on Facebook and knew that we were getting close, I started getting texts from my boss, my boss's wife, um, my coworkers, and they were all sending me these texts that says, hey, Rob, welcome home. Like, I've never felt like so welcomed back to any place I've ever been. And now and I've only lived down here for like three or four months. So I called Spencer, my other boat captain, and he met, it. we pulled into Megan's Bay. If you guys Google Megan's Bay, it's an amazing little anchorage on the north side of St. Thomas. He brought out lobster tails. He brought out prime rib. We cooked a big dinner, had rum. It was a great little homecoming. Well, I think after you go through a
0: journey like that to get to a place where all these people are, I think at that point you've you've exceeded the expectations that this is home, right? This is the new place. This is, hey, accept me. Look at the hell I went through to get here to be, you know, in your midst.
1: You hazed it, yourself. Uh, it's still 10.99. I'm assuming you're here for the long haul since your boat's here. I was like, "Yeah, Mark." He's like, "All right, I'm gonna put you on W2 now." And so <laughs> I guess I'm a full-time employee at Ocean Safari. I think I think I think they know that I'm uh I'm serious about staying out here. So yeah, now today you guys are you're back
0: to fishing somewhat. You've been taking tours out. I know you had a you had like a five o'clock you know uh a dinner cruise, sunset cruise this evening before uh, we were able to knock this interview out. Is everything kind of back to business as usual? Well,
1: on Tuesday of this week, which is the Tuesday after Memorial Day, all the bars and restaurants are open. You know, social distancing, all that stuff still in effect. But the bars and restaurants are open. It's come one June. Tourists are allowed back on the island. Now, we've still been fishing some. You know, there's locals we take out. There's permanent residents that, you know, are people who live here you know, part-time that are here. We're taking out, you know, the but the fishing has been great. And, you know, we have the two fishing boats that we charter and then we have our big 49 foot, our snorkel and reef boat. Well, that's what we, that's what we went out on tonight to do a little, little pie trip. They're trying to do some new trips where we actually started them on the, I think next Friday, this was kind of like a trial run where we go out there, order pizza, you know, it's a sunset kind of, fun cruise, but tonight was kind of like the walkthrough before we actually go live and take customers out. So, you know, we're open for business back down here and, and you know, one June, Airbnbs, hotels are all open. You know, the p- people are welcome to come back, you know, with this whole COVID-19 thing. So, you know, the summertime isn't historically our busy season here because, you know, when it's hot in South Texas, you don't usually go to where it's hot, like the, you know, Virgin Islands versus the wintertime. But, uh, we, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm watching the bookings every day, and we're getting more and more for June and July. So, I haven't, I haven't ran a trip trip since March 24th. Well, I'll tell you, I think there's a little bit of a misnomer there, Rob, because
0: it, here, again, South Texas or even South Florida, it gets to be high 90s, 90% humidity, afternoon showers, which, don't get wrong, the afternoon showers are amazing, but then 15 minutes after that, the sun's back out and you get the extra humidity at that point. It's pretty suboptimal, you know, here in the, in the subtropics of the Southern, you know, these Southern States, but you go down to the islands, there's constant wind. It's 80, 83. And the humidity is 70, 60. It's less. I don't know what the percentage is, but it it seems less humid in here. And maybe it's just the wind, but the islands in July are much more pleasant and bearable and fun to be in than uh, Houston. Just
1: saying. All right. Yeah. Okay. You're true. I mean, the islands are a great place to be compared to just about anywhere. <laughs> about anywhere. <laughs> right. No. 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 <laughs> I'm out here. It's like we don't get the the winds don't blow quite as hard, and the sea state's a lot better. You know, as summer kind of progresses versus the winter, where you know the trade winds are constantly blowing. Now they kind of ease up a little bit in the summertime. But taking the boats out is great. I mean, they're great because we're, you know the water's not as rough as it was. You know, when I was down here in January, when I looked over at Chris, the, uh, you know, Captain Chris Rapcheck, and I was like, is it always like this? And he kind of looks around and says, Mm, actually today's not that bad. You know, and I'm used to the Gulf of Mexico, which is like a farm pond. I was kind of blown away a little bit. You know, I had to raise my, you know, flag of what's crazy, you know, I had to lower it down a little bit. So like, well, I guess this is fine. Cause you know, we you know, most of the boats in Panama City would cancel if it was like this. But out here we're running.
0: Very cool. Well, I mean, th- there it is. Uh, I'm not a big, you know, offshore fisher, but I do like to come down and sail. So, I know we'll see you down there. What is next for Mr. Rob Houston? You continue to challenge yourself with some in- insane stuff, you know, from racing King the Hammers to just going out and, you know, riding dirt bikes from northern Arizona all the way to southern Nevada. Nora, now sailing, you know, all the way to uh, St. Thomas from Panama City. What's next? What's next?
1: Honestly, Wyatt, and you're going to think I'm crazy, but Linda and I are looking at 42 to 46 foot catamarans and I've got her, you know, sold on sailing the Caribbean, but I'm telling you that around the world trip is, it has me so intrigued and so just like, like I'm blown away by it. I'm blown away by the logistics of it, by the preparation, you know, the stamina, uh, the adventure of it. Like I think the next that that's that'll be with next for me. Not anytime soon, but I think that's is what I want to do. That that is what I want to do. And if you did it like Alex
0: Russ did it where people fly in and join you for different legs, I'm down.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. And you know, I I don't think anybody could do it with you the whole time. Just like Alex, I think you'd have to be like, "Hey Wyatt, you know, I'll pick you up in, you know, wherever and you can ride for three or four weeks through, you know, Fiji.
0: Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I'll pick you up in Fiji and drop you off on Bora Bora. Right. Or, or
1: Thailand or Phuket or something. Right. I, I'm all right. Cool. That story of him, like, and then being on the sea, like that's, that's really where my mind's been lately. And, and honestly, compared to like a mono whole sailboat or like this, you know, this sport fisher I'm on right now, you know, those cats are nice. And I, and I think you have some experience with, you know, sailing cats.
0: Uh, my only experience. Well, I mean, I say my own experience, my testing out of my sailing was on a mono hull, which I was a disaster. Like I, I believe and love the stability of the big cats, but nonetheless, I was trying to bait you into, uh, alluding to something and you kind of never took it. So I'm just going to come out and say it. Are you working on some TV work for maybe uh, a very popular show? that you're something of a fan of is, is there something going there? I I mean, I could read into some videos that I saw of you in, uh, the Dominica.
1: Yeah. So when we were in Dominican Republic, we took the boat off to the shore and I did, I did a little video and I was talking about, you know, I'm looking for an idol and you know, where's Jeff probes at? And, uh, you know, I'm a, a lifelong fan of survivor and I have my audition video already made And I just need to sit down and I need to do it this week, actually, because I think the deadline's coming up. I need to sit down, edit it all out, and do the application and try to be on Survivor. I mean, I don't know. I outwit, outlast, outplay. I mean, I don't know. It's a
0: mental game. There's a lot of mental there. And I think you're pretty strong on the mental side of, I don't know if you're good at playing games, but uh, you're definitely strong at surviving.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the surviving part's easy. I think the social part and like kind of navigating that would be the challenge. But I don't know, you know, I'm, it's exciting. And, you know, as a super fan of the show and I don't know. Hey, I'll be cheering up for you and watching you, you know, rise up
0: to a rise to the occasion.
1: So, and actually I applied before and I did get a call back. Once you don't get anything more than that, then you have to reapply all over again. So, I got a better video. I'm putting together some better stuff. You know, maybe I can get get on there that way.
0: I'm pulling for you. If there's some like, if it was a popularity vote, I think we could, you know, with off road racers, uh, I think we could, uh, you know, crowdsource uh, vote you in, <laughs> if that were possible, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. I, well, hey man, Rob, thank you for coming on. Did we
1: cover everything that you wanted to get off your chest? Everything that is who Rob Usnik is? Yeah. Why? You, we covered a lot, man. And and honestly, you know, I'm a huge fan of your show. It inspired me to start my own show. My show has inspired other people to do theirs, you know, which kind of goes back to Alex Rust. you know, like what you did it, it has like, you know, trickle down effect. When you come up with this, it was a great idea. I loved it. And it got people doing stuff. But no, thanks for being I really appreciate you having me on. I'm a super fan of the show, super fan of Ultra 4 racing. They've been around since the beginning of it. You know, I've raced, I mean, I've been out there seven times, you know, three in the buggy, three in the side by side. I did King of the Motos, you know, so kind of got out of it. It's just, it's big time now. And the guys who are doing it, hats off to them, you know, and hats off to these builders. And I'll never forget why I'm leaving you on this. And it's, I think it, it's just as true now as it was in 2007, 2008. When Kevin Yoder said it, these cars have got to be built to operate at 100% duty cycle. And it's the truth. Like, you can't, that's why you don't see F toys or stuff out there. One, they're not fast, but you can't build them heavy enough, heavy duty enough to last. And these builders are just cranking out these cars that are just blowing my mind. These drivers are Jason Shearer and those guys. How can it amazes me to watch them drive? They are insane. Eric Miller, Campbell's—I mean, everybody's pushing the limits—and I'm really excited to see where we you know where it goes. Yeah, the bar h- continues to get pushed to these echelons that
0: we would have never fathomed just two years ago, five years ago, and especially, definitely not ten years ago. Um, oh my god! Yeah, man, I do, I do value that. The you, I talk about this with so many people because this totally does get into my head and really what I love is what inspires you, where do you draw your inspiration from, how do you set the next bar, you know, I don't want to sit down and, and look at what my, look at what Facebook shows me I did one year ago, you know, it, they give you that every day you get a memory, right, what you did one year ago, three years ago, five years ago, I absolutely push myself to try to when I, that open that up and reflect on the last year that I'm not
1: sitting in the exact same spot. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. And, and that's a great policy to have with yourself. And don't
0: get me wrong. We all have days where things suck. You know, I, I had a day this week that I came home. I felt like I got my teeth kicked in all day. Um, it was just very suboptimal, but then you have to stay positive, keep your head up, keep your nose. Well, keep your head up in the air and keep your nose on the grindstone is really how how you've got to do it. And you've got to keep pushing that ball and moving that ball. And the key for me is drawing inspiration from other people. And I will tell you that absolutely this show, it, it is cool that it does inspire people, but it inspires me just having conversations with, you know, you, and, and I know there's going to be people that are going to listen to this interview and they're going to listen back. Rob, you think, well, he's not even in ultra four anymore. He's not a racer anymore. I'm not sure why, why it's carrying this guy. I Absolutely. And d- please don't take that as a knock, Rob. This is you led to so much in Ultra Four, and you've inspired so many in Ultra Four. And just because you're not racing it today doesn't mean your son won't race it tomorrow. And guess what? It's it's also my show, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I'm gonna cover I'm gonna cover who I do. But um, you've been a great friend of mine for well over a decade, and like I said, you've stayed stayed in my house when you've had to drive through Houston, and I really strongly thank you for your friendship all these years and the stuff that you've been able to do physically and mentally and pull off i'm not i mean live vicariously through some of your antics and some of the stuff you pulled off i mean i guess i think at the the end of the day you know when you kind of celebrate life it's like man this guy had no regrets i mean look at all of the just bucket list of um, bucket list of hard ass stuff that you've pulled off and it's inspiring. It, I mean, if anything, if, if it just pushes one person to go out and spend a couple more wrenches for one hour, one night um, on their, on their junk, then I think that's something. But I mean, I don't, I don't know that much either.
1: I know what you're saying, man. And, and like, again, I appreciate it and our friendship is you know, like you said, been over a decade and, and, uh, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to you and you and the family coming out and visiting St. Thomas. It is. And anyone else that wants
0: to go, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to twist my arm. This is like your story about, yeah, I was, you know, when I was stationed in Wichita, no one came and visited me. Um, well, when you're in Fort Bragg, no one's going to come visit you. But now that you're in St. Thomas, (laughs) you don't have to really push people too hard to be like, Hey, come visit me in, uh, the, the U S Virgin islands. Okay,
1: I know. Hey, your AT and T cell phone still works. You don't need a passport. Flights are cheap. It's nice. They take U.S. dollars. See? Yep, I'm right there.
0: Rob, thank you so much. Congratulations on your uh, your transition from into retirement. Thank you so much for your 26 years of service to this country. I know we just came out of a uh, uh, you know Memorial Day. and I know that's to celebrate those that gave you know the ultimate sacrifice. For our freedoms, but you served uh, twenty six years for us, giving everything, making many sacrifices in that regard in your life for uh, for our freedoms. I greatly and always will always respect you for that, and thank you for that, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for coming on the talent tank. Thank you for letting me bounce ideas off you on a regular basis. Thank you for the support.
1: Yeah, Wyatt, thank you, and you're quite welcome for all, you know everything. And uh, it's my pleasure, and it's really an honor to be on the show. And I. And, can't thank you enough well there we go all right folks i hope you guys enjoyed it we're out
0: i hope you guys really liked this episode it was a really fun one to make as usual i really have to thank my uh my three partners on this custom splice those guys if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects please hit todd and his crew up at a uh, customsplice.com. give them a call machining oh my gosh Branding machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the talent tank, and I uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, magnitude performance. Jason Yode and Company, there in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for for the talent tank and getting behind and supporting this uh, this venture and this project and everything. Give them give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with springs. And then the parent company, Mass Motorsports Engines, man, they have uh, they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next week.
1: Thank you for listening and taking a dive into The Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at The Talent Tank or our website, thetalentank.com.